0: Um, I guess I'll introduce myself. I mean, most people know me like I've been listening to the podcast as one of the usual co-hosts. Lucas isn't with us today, but um, it's kind of a secret. I don't usually um, do my full name on the podcast because sometimes it's a little edgy, but my name is Walker and I am a Hampshire student like Lucas and like... Well, I'm a Hampshire alum or dropout like uh, Lucas and Jacob um, and Jacob who is joining me today um and uh, I've gone over my story on the past episodes of the podcast basically most of the story although there's a little bit of a gap as we last recorded basically in the summer and I've had a lot of health in path, the last summer and I've had a lot of health stuff since but I've gone over most of my story, but just like, there's going to be people that will listen to this just, um, maybe to hear Jacob's story and not know my background. So I'll just go over it like really quick and how I know Jacob. Um, I have like a number of illnesses, uh, that I've like, uh, racked up, um, that all kind of relate to each other. ME, CFS, um, Like chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, I have connective tissue problems, craniocervical instability, what they call mast cell activation syndrome. And that's one we'll be talking about a little bit extra today and, um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. But basically, I've been really sick for a while and a lot of it has had to do with environmental stuff, even if not all of it is, um, and, uh, And it also, some of it has had to do with infection, but, um, a lot of it has had to do with environmental stuff. And it's a very underlooked area of illness, uh, of illness causation and etiology. And I know Jacob from way before I was sick, really, um, from Hampshire College, uh, and it's a small liberal arts college. And I was studying. Music and photography, and uh, Jacob, uh, you were studying film, right?
1: Yeah, I guess mainly film. I was because Hampshire doesn't have, uh, you create your own major, I was tying in other, other things into it, but I would say, yeah, video art, uh, experimental film was the main thing.
0: And we go so far back, we were literally on the same. Well, not so far back, but like we're literally so close—we're on the same dorm hall of the first year before you were allowed to live in uh, mods, which is like more cool, like apartment buildings on campus. But we're literally on the same dorm hall,
1: right? <laughs> Way back, yeah, yeah, exactly. H three in uh, twenty thirteen. It would have been yeah.
2: So that's many years ago.
0: Yeah. And we like literally, it would be like, like sometimes, like, uh, we'd all go hang out in Jacob's room sometimes, just like, uh, before doing something, before going out to like a concert or before, um, going to the dining commons or whatever. We'd all go hang out in Jacob's room because he had speakers and stuff. And also, like, sometimes I'd go to Jacob's room late at night. I don't think this happened more than twice, to be fair, but I remember when I was like, when I smoked too much weed and was like freaking out because that was something I really couldn't handle. Um, and Jacob would, I'm just saying this because, uh, Jacob, you've said that I've helped you with like some health problems, but you helped me, uh, then with those minor crises, um, you know, you were like, you know, get some blood sugar in, you know, calm down. It's not laced, et cetera. <laughs> Sounds like Hampshire College. Yeah. yeah, man. Yeah. I never really liked weed. And uh, I could go on... For a while about that, because like it never even worked for me for like chronic pain. Uh, I still had the same problem. It just, but yeah, that's beside the point. The point is we knew each other from Hampshire. And, um, I stayed at Hampshire for longer. I stayed, but I actually, we both had to drop out essentially for health reasons, um, in different ways. I stayed there until like literally, I'm like, I was a semester away from finishing my Div 3. I stayed there until twenty seventeen. Jacob, you stayed there till
1: um until let's see, like the end of twenty fourteen. So twenty
2: fifteen. So pretty much. Yeah. A
1: year and a half. Right.
0: For me it was like I had like I had the beginning stages of CFS after like a Lyme infection and just like a ton of cognitive issues, brain fog and insomnia. Um uh, and could you talk more about like why you dropped out or
1: yeah? Well, I guess what's, what's interesting is now both of us in hindsight, I think realized maybe you were aware at the time that there might have been some relationship to Hampshire and getting sick. Um, for me, I moved into, like Walker mentioned, the new apartments, uh, on campus and ended up just essentially just kind of having extreme anxiety um and depression which I'd never I think I'd experienced some bouts of depressiveness um but never to such an extreme degree that frankly just made uh yeah I wasn't able to keep studying um at that point and decided I needed to drop out. Um, in hindsight, what I realized and that we're going to go into a little bit more is the apartment that I moved into had a pretty well-known mold problem. Um, and as I've realized for whatever reason, it seemed like, uh, I had developed an extreme sensitivity to mold. So... Now, many years later, I definitely attribute the mental effects, not even just physiological, but the mental effects uh, leading me to drop out was because essentially from mold and mycotoxins in that new dorm. Yeah,
0: and it's an underlooked problem. I will say like everyone knew that Greenwich, which is the, the mod that you're talking about, had an especially bad mold problem. Um, but like mold doesn't sound like that big a deal when you hear about it, and we can go into why. Mm-hmm. It's because like it's like mold is a natural thing. It's just like a fucking fungus. Like how bad can it be? You know, it's like the stuff that's on bread. Like it doesn't. Like I had no yeah. inkling that causes debilitating illness. I mean, oh, yeah, me there's too. publicized stuff about like Greenwich having bad mold, and I still was like. Ah, who cares? Yeah. But I, I will say that like besides you, I know like I know someone who is who has not had the same level of health problems as you or me, but does have recollections of Greenwich triggering like really bad asthma to the extent that he he said and I don't know if this might be quasi joking, like in terms of exaggerating, but that just like thinking about Greenwich Mold and the air hunger gave him like PTSD. Like it was just so awful. And this is someone who's a bodybuilder and I think of his very like vitalistic and strong person or full of vitality. Um
1: I don't yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's
1: it's freaky. And I would I never would have thought. I remember hearing that Greenwich was bad, uh with had mold in it, and I was like, Yeah, so what? <laughs> Like, what's that going to do? And uh, many years later, after I'm sure what you're going to get into, um, uh, years of unresolved, uh, weird health things that I think were going on even before going to Hampshire and during even the first year. Um, About a year and a half ago, realizing that they all stemmed essentially from I guess you could call it toxic mold poisoning or sensitivity. So I was I think we were all wrong to think that mold couldn't do that much moving into Greenwich, into those dorms in Hampshire.
0: So yeah. I wasn't in Greenwich to be clear, but I do think all of the dorms had mold problems. I also think that the outdoor air had problems and we're gonna get into like that later because that's something like Almost no mold doctors talk about and almost no, definitely no conventional doctors talk about. I mean, I don't, I'm not talking about normal particulate pollution. I'm talking about, uh, certain outdoor toxins that are important in mold illness. But, um, to get to your story and like how it started, like obviously you didn't realize right away, you know, when you left Hampshire, um, you, you did a lot of traveling after you left Hampshire. Um, and without like, cause we both have recollections, uh, I think we can say where we can look back in hindsight and say, well, wow, I felt better there. Well, wow, I felt better there. I mean, I had no idea Hampshire, um, had any role in making me sick. And, um, so I'd like to, to have you just kind of talk briefly about what you did after Hampshire, um, before we started talking again about like, Health issues before you realized the mold problems. Um, without like saying necessarily like all of the things that you later learned and re- recollected about this place felt better, just kind of talk about your travels.
1: Um, sure. So I left, I left Hampshire and that would have been, let's say, like the beginning of 2015. And, so I'm covering the time period between 2015 and it would be mid 2019. Uh, mid 2019, probably. Um, in terms of health wise, since I think we're trying to, I think we're both trying to get across that this thing that I was very skeptical of, that Walker told me about. I knew he was sick. Meanwhile, I was having like I think pretty negligent health and just trying to put my health. To the back of my mind and not take too seriously persisting issues. Uh, I think we're both trying to get across that this is something that's kind of overlooked, and at least for me, it's been just massively life-changing. Uh, to understand that just weird shit that gone on for most of my life kind of comes back to this. So, health-wise, timeline from 2015 to 20. Nineteen, it was not like linear line down, but it was definitely kind of an oscillating line down to probably the worst, probably the worst I've uh, been like really hitting rock bottom, and that's mentally and physiologically
0: right. Uh, But but I meant also like um where where in the world were you like what were you doing also like just. To, Not every detail, but in general. Like, I don't know.
1: So I went... Yeah. Uh, briefly, I moved back to New York, which is where I'm from. Um, and then I did quite a bit of working and traveling and trying to explore some of the things I was hoping to explore at Hampshire. Um so I ended up going to Myanmar for four months in 2015, which was during the election, um, which is now the nullified, came back. Um, I spent time then in China um, as well. Uh, I spent time also kind of in between just living in New York and trying to finish school um, before finally just dropping out and uh, and giving up on studies, uh, whether or not that's temporary or the rest of my life. I'm not sure, but that would have been the end of 2017. And then I went back to Asia for about nine months, where I initially was going to do some meditation and um, especially wanting to meet some acquaintances that I'd met before and be in parts of the world that are not so touched by modernity and are a lot more like how things used to be maybe even a hundred years ago. Um, and that last day, that was about nine months of that before coming back um staying in you were in
2: la at one
1: point right mm-hmm. so i came back from asia um in part due to just yeah also health health things and then i moved to la for about uh four five months I right, about um and then that brings us to 2019 and i went back to my parents'
2: house at that point. Right. Okay, so
0: mm-hmm. for our overlapping timelines, right. um, I, you know, I got sick in initially in 2016. I only made it a year of school after I initially got sick. And the the very obvious trigger was like a very obvious Lyme disease case. There's a lot of cases where, you know, it's it's kind of sketchy or it's unclear when or but you got infected to me. It was obvious bullseye, uh, rash, classic fever and like diagnosed by not a specialist, just my regular family doctor and treated, but still having lingering symptoms. But there, there's relationships between like infections and environmental things. In retrospect, my house was really awfully moldy and I'll get into that too. But just for the timeline overlapping by the time. It was 2019 where Jacob was talking about. I was, um, yeah, by the time it was 2019, I was bedridden. I was experiencing, I, I was, I think, maybe um, almost diagnosed with craniocervical instability, like having major connective tissue
1: and brain uh, issues. Um, you couldn't even like listen. I remember you talking about in your room and like the rustle of curtains and the sound of it being so painful which i mean i think for most people even me right now it's almost incomprehensible but the pain of just that rustle was like excruciating so a musician yeah like that being you you couldn't listen to music or podcasts and
0: right yeah yeah and we like crazy. We palliated that synth sim- like we- there are ways to treat it with um medications like the sound sensitivity but to me that has been one of the worst symptoms and um since it's caused by like brainstem compression and inflammation there's not that much you can do besides palliative without addressing the root cause. there's not like like people for other for sound sensitivity with other causes like inner ear or other things there's like desensitization protocols, but for this, you cannot like just push. Yeah. But yeah. So, um, I was really sick and I talked to Jacob, um, and, um, I do think I remember, um, I mean, Jacob's one of my best friends. So I would like, wasn't taking much offense at this or anything, but I don't think Jacob was like quite understanding it or like, um, just, which I think is interesting because later, you got sick with not the same severity necessarily, but totally similar causes and stuff. And also probably similar in terms of people not understanding it.
1: Right. Yeah. yep. I think what's, yeah, the kind of the point to get across is I was, I was super skeptical. I was listening to like my best friend just, you know, for a couple of years before I understood it. Just be like suffering, like literally just taken out of my life and taken out of all of our lives. And like young person, 20 years old, like Walker, the most, probably the most intelligent human being I've ever met. And if not the most gifted musician, neurotic musician who'd come to my door at three in the morning and make me listen to weird avant-garde shit. That I didn't always understand was like just stuck in bed, couldn't even listen to music or like talk on the phone, and it took you a moment to realize why it was that you were so sick, and I remember getting these messages as you were going through this illness, putting things together, which you are like exceptional like beyond any kind of human uh Beyond inhuman ability to persist through such extreme uh malaise pain um, disease lack of ease and living, and there was a day uh since we are talking about mold here and because right. that was the the thing that seemed to you know for you and myself seemed to be the the real shit that was going on. There was a day you texted me or you said something like, dude, I think it's that my house is moldy. And I'm like, what? I "I I don't think I knew what to make of it, but um, right. And that progressed to being like, if I leave my window open, I feel better. And then that progressed to like, Jacob, I need to like, me and my sister are gonna drive. All of Vermont is good, but it's not that good. I need to drive to, you know, the Western U S that has less toxic, um, air, indoor and outdoor, less chemical, less, um, areas that have this, uh, yeah. Gnarly mold that was messing you up and messing me up and messing other people up. Yeah. And then next thing I know is like, you're listening to music or you send me like a song over text and I haven't had that for years that you've sent me like any piece of music to listen to. Yeah. And that's when I knew I'm like, oh shit. Okay. Right. There's something interesting.
0: I think, you know what? I think that I didn't get like ever a hundred percent of the time, even in pristine air that um, I didn't get a hundred percent like the return to it nonsense sensitivity, but certainly I you know, I've told my story in the past. I mean, we didn't actually even first go to the West. We went to because I just thought, why not try places in the East that are known to be better? And, you know, it's not all about humidity for any listeners. It's about like wilderness areas, biomes, like outdoor microbiomes, things we don't really understand why, but some places are just like have more pristine air, I don't know, like, and you know, Vermont, you would think is good, right? Like, that's probably part of the skepticism, is like, me being like, we need to leave all of Vermont. Yeah. To be we be fair, I'm sure there are yeah. some, like, small areas in Vermont that are good. We actually found like, one spot, it was really, like, a small area on top of this hill, like, way, 30 minutes away from my house, but like, it, it's hard to believe that, like, big swaths of outdoor areas are like bad especially when they're like rural areas like i bet like you know people that vacation in vermont i don't know like
1: Do you want to just like address this very nebulous topic and just say kind of pointedly like what we're both talking about?
0: So I learned this through talking to people Mm -hmm. Um, uh, like Eric Johnson, who I've talked about in previous episodes, and he's a survivor of the Lake Tahoe um, CFS outbreak that kind of coined the term CFS. And he pioneered all of this, quote unquote, extreme mold avoidance. And it's called that, but I don't think it's very extreme. So I'll, I'll talk about the terms. So when I talk about outdoor toxins, I'm not necessarily talking about conventional air quality index pollution. Um, and I think that's this is why it's hard for some people to grasp because we essentially say there's a hypothesis that there are these outdoor things which we can't yet measure but we can sense really well once we learn to sense them and they have a major effect on health and that sounds kind of out there to people i mean
1: right yeah i mean it it, i feel like it's it's usually frightening to bring any of this up because it's it all sounds like a hokey conspiracy like you're saying there's chemtrails like creeping out of the sewer every day and they're coming to like make you just tired as fuck and right. and, and shit. Um, the main thing is that you realize that in your house, there was mold, there's mycotoxins, um, especially yeah. drywall. And that this, maybe because of Lyme disease, led you to have an extreme like autoimmune um, inflammation response due to even the most minute amount of mycotoxins and what i've realized is for whatever reason i am the same way um and addressing the outdoor and just general biome is there's there's quite a bit of research about the mycotoxins and that it's not just affecting those with who have developed a severe sensitivity but more perhaps on like Walker is a canary in a coal mine, sensing something that for someone that is um, not mold effective or mo- not mold sensitive, it could lead to heart disease or Alzheimer's, cancer. Uh, there's a big list. And then, and understanding this, you came to realize okay, this is what's this is why I'm so sick. And it's not just about going outside, because outside right. even in an entire state, there's mold that are breaking down things that are generally human made and toxic and yeah cannot let your body go into essentially right. yeah, that lack of influence. Although
0: let's let's kind of take it one step at a time and try to explain like mm. sequentially both my experience, because there's two things. There's theory mm and experience and people told me theory and some of it I believed or took seriously, especially when it was coming from Eric who is very science minded and very intelligent. And like, I'm a skeptic kind of person. So I had (laughs) to hear it. Like I had to hear the science, like the scientific theory, Mm. but also I wouldn't have done all of that just for a theory. Like there was experience that validated it. It was like, it was like, Holy shit. Like I have air hunger, and all these symptoms. And I mean, and I had what like visible allergy, like symptoms too. Yeah. Like, but like, um, rashes and stuff inside that didn't happen outside and like flushing. Um, but also like air hunger and can you describe that
1: air hunger Walker?
0: Well, man, it, I do. Th- that's one. I think that is like a common symptom, even in other diseases. It just mm. feels like you it feels like you can't um breathe properly even when you're getting oxygen. It just feels like uncomfortable. I know that it's
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know a, a symptom of many diseases. you just yeah and and that was like there were a couple of times, even before twenty nineteen before I was really really sick, where I experienced that in my house, and I just kind of was like, huh, I like have that inside, then I go outside and I feel better and later I would learn that outside my house wasn't even good enough to heal, but I'm saying there is still a difference and that feeling that difference allowed me to kind of have an experiential data point where I thought where it wasn't just based on theory that I left my house and it was based on some experience Mm -hmm. and we did do some mold tests and stuff and they showed like off the charts levels of a number of molds, but I also don't know how much I believe or trust those tests. I, I to some extent they were to like to validate and convince family members that we're dealing with something serious. Mm. You know, I just trust my senses more than anything. And that's what I want to learn to do. And I, I was going to go into defining terms about like sabbatical and all of this to people. Uh, In the mold avoidance community, we have this term sabbatical and and this term unmasking, and they're related. And a sabbatical is this idea that to test for yourself if mold is a problem for you, um, you know, you don't have to, like, just, you know, throw away all your stuff and just start all this without any kind of data point showing it matters. To test if it is a problem for you, you go for usually two weeks to a known pristine place. It could be the desert, it could be like, you know, a, a beach in the Caribbean, but like a known pristine place, usually that other people have reported is good. And there's lots of reports. Um, or maybe it just needs to be different enough than your home environment. and better enough. doesn't even have to be perfect with none of your possessions because your possessions can have clinging mycotoxins and mold spores. And then you spend like two weeks there and you go back to your home environment. What's supposed to happen in those two weeks is called unmasking, um, which is kind of like if you, someone has described it as, you know, if you, um, This is done in like diet stuff. If you don't know whether you have a gluten allergy or uh, celiac, you might stop eating uh, anything with gluten in it for like two weeks and then reintroduce it and you should have a more dramatic reaction and be able to pinpoint it. It's a similar principle, but with inhaled, toxins you go back to your home and you see if it slams you now i didn't really do that because i had had a couple mini sabbaticals where like what people call accidental sabbaticals where you just leave and come back and you notice the difference and at that point i was like i'm like i just intuitively knew it was a problem and so i didn't feel like i needed to spend Time proving to myself it was a problem. But some people who are less sure might want to do a sabbatical. But anyway, it, so unmasking it is still part of the experience, even if you're not doing a sabbatical and going back to your home environment. I went to, um, uh, you know, Virginia, uh, to Shenandoah National Park, which was great. And I went to parts of West Virginia in the mountains, which are great. And and then I went out west, and I started healing a lot. And I, um, and I'm speeding up that because this episode is not about me. It's more about Jacob. And I, I'm just telling that part of the story to, to get to the point where I'm out there doing this and healing, and and then telling Jacob about it. And um, so you know, at some point I started to like. Not just be like, I, you know, I feel a little better outside my house or I think my house is mold. I started to be like, this effect is really real. I'm in the West. I'm, you know, uh, I'm healing and I would uh, communicate to Jacob about that from wherever I was, whether it was Shenandoah National Park in Virginia or the ancient bristlecone pine forest or areas near Las Vegas in the desert. But I would communicate this to Jacob over text or whatever, and um uh what would you say like is the timeline of from when I start talking about that to you to when you start to like really delve into it? um I know that you talked to a doctor I recommended
1: mm-hmm. i I think I started. I started wondering if there was a correlation between how I felt and the environment, uh, sooner, sooner than I realized, but I just didn't want to totally bring it to the forefront because I knew how big of a journey and expense and everything it was for you. So mm-hmm. it's, it was daunting. Um, but I started before even seeing a doctor i started realizing um going different places that i i definitely felt pretty different uh this was i think especially in los angeles where i was aware of this um and during that time i i really tanked um and the day that i left the apartment that i was living in i I was scrubbing these. I was scrubbing something in the bathroom, and I, and I saw just an immense amount of black mold. Um, and of course, at that point, I'd known about what Walker was saying, and I think at that point something kind of clicked. It was like, you know what, I gotta, I gotta check this out more. Um, and can you go more into like
0: symptoms? Because like we, like we covered. Uh, earlier Hmm. like your physical journey and then we covered like some of your general symptoms but you didn't get into detail as much like could you go into your symptoms around this period like 2019 when like things were getting really bad
1: so 2019 right before working with that same doctor that you recommended to me i i was not sleeping which i had extreme insomnia going back to um the beginning of high school getting progressively worse probably each year um where that would be sometimes one to two nights a week of no sleep regularly getting between you know two to six hours of sleep um Pretty constant anxiety uh which is not not so much fun uh pretty extreme depression, uh quite a lot of hair loss uh also gastrointestinal uh, problems pretty majorly um, to where I almost i'd say every single meal that I ate, I was in pretty excruciating pain after after doing so um mm, that's that was, really rough and that was crazy um and i was also working like generally about 10 hours a day uh out there and so trying to manage all these different symptoms and also trying to like keep a straight face at work was was uh it got too much to handle um for me so that was kind of where i was at and that was all of that getting exasperated to such an extreme point was where i reached the breaking point and started to delve into that there may be a link between the environment and these symptoms that i've been having for so long Okay.
0: And at some point you also like went back home though, to, um, it's to an area near the, your home is near the Bronx and Westchester, right? It's mm-hmm. Pelham. Um, I mentioned this just because I wanted to like briefly later go over like, you know, micro areas. Cause I'm actually in the New York city area for some other stuff and parts of it aren't terrible, but I, uh, I haven't been to Pelham. I imagine just by Jacob's description that it's not amazing
1: outdoor air. Yeah, I think so. I have a feeling it's all a mystery. And uh, I went back, you're right, I I went back home because I hit the wall. um, And it was too much on my plate with the health stuff and paying rent, etc., and yeah i was back home and i i probably felt worse than i felt in la (laughs) but i didn't have to uh wake up and you know drink exorbitant amounts of caffeine and stuff to keep going so at least at least i didn't have to do that at that time uh yeah yeah, it was it wasn't for me it wasn't so great airwise i can only speculate
2: though it's it's been a
0: Yeah. Well, I would, I think it's funny. And this is just like the real quick side note that like I left school and went home when I got too sick to continue at school. And you left your work and place in LA and went home and you got too sick to continue like the grind of work. It's funny because you're both like leaving the grind and then going home to kind of seek healing and refuge but those places because of their literal toxicity turned out to not be healing refuges
1: yeah exactly yep
0: it's like an irony there and it's like because like what we're really seeking now and always is yeah like a really healing refuge and that's what a a home is supposed to be like that's what a built environment or wherever we find our home is supposed to be but like with these toxicity issues, it isn't necessarily, um, yeah. But go on about like what what happened from that point and the doctor and uh, finding a doctor and and starting to experiment with this.
1: So from that point, uh, so I think the thing that's the hardest to link and took me still a long time was that there is something invisible that I'm not seeing that could be making me feel such a way. Uh, and especially the mental part of it was really difficult to link those two, but I, I think I got back home and I was so sick that I, I frankly was suicidal. I didn't really, I felt like so terrible just continually that, and I, had done so many blood tests and all kinds of things only to show like uh, marginal marginally low levels of certain minerals that i all i could kind of do is be like you know what maybe there's something to this and that doctor uh, who had been working with and still am his specialty is environmental illness and he kind of helped me Go back and look at a timeline and be like, "Oh shit, Hampshire! Damn, I got messed up when I was there." I mean, it was a cool, it was a great experience, but my health really tanked, and there was definitely it was a bad environment for mycotoxins. Um, yeah, and mycotoxins, which so hard to understand. They mycotoxins are a mold. Uh, toxin that's released from the living uh, decay cycle of mold and it can be found in old houses, new houses, anything. Water damaged houses yeah. are of course the most common. My right. childhood home is basically on a underground uh, water, or I guess a river essentially. Um, so our the yard our backyard is extremely wet and there's definitely quite a bit of flooding growing up in it um yeah and those mycotoxins oh go ahead walker
0: i was just gonna make a point about mycotoxins um like one of the things that people don't get is uh they're just like get an air purifier whatever you know um get an air purifier wear a mask or whatever like scrub the spores scrub Mm -hmm. the mold but mycotoxins not the mold spores necessarily themselves which are bigger mycotoxins are small molecules that pass through like HEPA filters Uh, a HEPA air purifier is not going to do shit about a mycotoxin Um, so they are these small molecules that are hard to filter and also are um, is they're like sticky in terms of molecularly. Uh, I don't. I don't know exactly the molecular charge. Eric talks a lot about this, but they will stick to things. And I, in fact, I have Theo Theo a very prominent mast cell activation syndrome doctor. And so we're talking about a guy who you know, it has some mainstream credibility for mast cell activation syndrome. He's not some, like, alternative medicine doctor, but he says, you know, your mast cells react to mycotoxins and they react to mycotoxins that stick. Like, he talks about how the mycotoxins (laughs) stick to clothes and porous items and things, so people not only have to leave their house sometimes to get better from these mast cell reactions to mycotoxins,
2: they have to, like, Leave
1: behind their stuff. Yeah, uh, the they're tricky, and it and it doesn't even come down to just remediation of mold. Um, and a lot of that's due to the sticky nature of, of those mycotoxins, which are, um, which essentially they they will stick to everything, um, which for at least you or myself, um, leads to kind of all the symptomology that we've both been talking about, but my house may have mold remediated, but everything that's unfortunately inside of that environment, that home or wherever, after years of having mycotoxins kind of just coating the whole place, and being absorbed into walls, into computers, furniture, everything, essentially plastic items, uh, kitchenware, most of that stuff, um, that's hard to remediate.
2: I wanted to touch on
0: something because you really like unless you're uncomfortable with it I mean we wanted to go into like detail about like how brutal the difficulty is and how like much of a change there is with avoidance mm-hmm.
2: I mean
0: you're talking about like being suicidally depressed when you were in New York
1: yeah I mean I was I was probably multiple years of feeling suicidally depressed
0: Right, but you're saying like you really felt like in danger, even though you're doing all the right things, which is like seeing a psychiatrist, right? Seeing a psychologist. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, yeah, I didn't want to dwell on that necessarily, but just to talk about like, yeah, these things cause. I mean, for me, they cause intense physical illness. They cause neuropsychiatric symptoms. Those aren't those aren't like at odds with each other. I mean, the Mm -hmm. brain is an organ it's physical but sometimes people don't see the physical causes like this like mold illness of you neuropsychiatric know, symptoms as it, they don't like jump to that as a first thought of what might be causing it at all oh um, yeah yeah. i see what you're saying
2: yeah
1: and
0: yeah so that's important to talk about and even though i like got really my like the biggest symptoms I was trying to treat through mold avoidance are like intense physical illness and um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and being like bed bound with fatigue. We also, and exercise intolerance. I was also, you know, one of the subtle and most immediately changeable things in a good or bad environment for me is neuropsychiatric symptoms. I think almost everyone with this illness has neuropsychiatric symptoms that change with exposures it's like one of the first signs um i think of it as like a warning alarm when i'm really depressed in a spot that i might be in a bad plume of air
2: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah totally yeah um and i guess to preface that there's there's different facebook groups um people online who have I honestly, I don't know how people figure it out. The only way I understood this was from you, but um, people who have realized that there's a connection, correlation between their environment, especially related to mold and how they feel. It seems like they, like these groups on Facebook, people talk all the time about um, now being aware of this and being in place and they're just like ridiculously
2: depressed
1: or, Like, so anxious, uh, have horrible insomnia, and all of a sudden, and they realize, oh, okay, well, this is, I'm in a a place that has bad air, I'm reacting to something here.
0: Yeah, people talk about sense of doom, too. I want to be clear for a second, like, we don't want to sound like bioreductionists and like every bad feeling everyone has ever had is caused by Mold or the toxins. <laughs> yeah, we're awesome. Awesome. The toxins, but there's a difference between like depression and grief. Like grief is something that any healthy person is gonna feel. Depression is an illness, and and even you know mainstream medicine would agree with that. They just disagree with what we're talking about about what causes it. It's an it's a well it's a symptom. It's or it's an illness, but it's not. It's not just necessarily like a normal thing. Um, So, yeah, that's the difference. We're not saying every feeling or emotion, you know, when you break up with someone and you feel like sad, that's caused by mold. We're talking about intense depression, anxiety, things that are um, essentially like psychiatric illnesses. As well as physical ones. But yeah, the psychiatric one is over. Okay, I that brings me to segueing. I was gonna say, so you realize some of this stuff while you're in New York and you talked to a doctor I recommended about it, but you also at the same similar time, I remember, I don't know the exact timeline, you did what we kind of call an accidental sabbatical, mm-hmm. which is where you go somewhere for a different reason than mold avoidance. But you come back and you're, you go there and come back and the difference between that environment and your home environment is like huge. And I think it was <laughs> yeah. Jackson
1: Hole. Mm-hmm. Did you talk about that? Yeah, you, you kind of summed it up. Um, so I was getting cued into all this and working with the environmental doctor who certainly helped massively and you and etc. And my sister was living in Jackson Hole and working there in the summer. And so I went out to visit her for probably a week and a half or so about the recommended time for sabbatical. And that was when it became kind of clear as night and and days. I was like, oh my god, I feel feel like bananas out here. This is great. (laughs) I felt really good. And yeah, yeah, I'm (laughs) almost a little jealous. I mean,
0: I've been to some amazing places in the southwest, but you know, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, I that's it. I still haven't been to Wyoming, it sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, it was, yeah, it's it's beautiful. I mean, what is it like the least populated state in the U.S.?
2: Um, it's densely populated, maybe besides Alaska, but definitely for the lower 48. Yeah, oh, that's true, densely populated.
1: So exactly as you said that was when I realized that okay there's something going on here so there's the feeling amazing
0: out there right and I don't do you notice like there's no psychiatric changes I'm sure you that was probably the first thing but did you notice like energy changes changes in your gut at all
1: yeah actually you know I forgot about that um and I'll go into some of that later on because this is it's definitely a positive story i think we're telling um i noticed on that trip um, that aside from pretty major psychiatric things changing um that i had i don't know how what the elevation was but i had no trouble I had a lot of energy to go and uh, do some pretty pretty big hikes um and i definitely generally always loved being active so that was awesome to feel that way and food wise right. I remember actually like really noting on that trip I'm like oh shit all these things that I like had trouble in the past eating or I would have like I had like food PTSD where I'd be afraid to eat a meal because I know I was going to feel so awful afterwards um that I wasn't having that anymore yeah or at least, definitely less. It wasn't an immediate change, so right. yeah, more than just. And I don't
2: think mm-hmm.
0: I don't think what you described before was necessarily like full blown CFS necessarily. It's hard to tell. Like there's some nuances, but you definitely weren't that energetic at home, right? Like mm-hmm. the hike, you weren't like hiking a ton around the Bronx or
1: wherever. <laughs> no, I think as it progressed until that turning point that year, I would say just in general, um, energy levels were going down and whatever sort of activity I was doing was coming from the place of probably like adrenal fatigue, like really just um, fight or flight kind of energy, not, not actual, um, not like a yeah. real energy.
0: Okay, so yeah, and then the other part of an accidental sabbatical or a purposeful sabbatical is the going home part. So what did you notice like on the way like from you're in Wyoming, you're feeling amazing, and then
2: you
1: go home? I think what was weird and we talked about this was I felt I definitely felt a lot worse going back home. I even noticed it in the airplane and there was a certain Somewhere, probably over New Jersey, going into the airport in New York, I noticed kind of all these feelings come back. Uh, so sort of brain fog, something shift in my body, which which was pretty weird to be aware of that. And then I got home and I was aware that, yeah, I think this place is making me sick. Um, and what's weird, about mold is being in a place that's not so good and i can say this in hindsight now is it's almost like the mycotoxins kind of control your brain because i'd be like oh no i'm not this isn't making me sick and i would delay uh leaving it just made it a lot harder to leave even though i i knew that there was a clear correlation I don't yeah know if that's just like brain fog doing that or I'm just not able to connect A and B. Yeah. But that
0: happens. Yeah, it, Eric talked about that a lot. He says it's kind of like the reason mm-hmm. he was able to get out or whatever so quickly is like he he was in um the army and studied like um whatever bio warfare mm-hmm. protocols would say when you get hip by nerve gas, a lot of people aren't, are not are going to be like in denial hmm. because of the nature of it being like almost paralyzing, not fully paralyzing, but almost paralyzing, mm-hmm. just make like people be in denial and not want to like move and get out of the way for like more attacks. And, anyway, oh, wow. but That's
2: weird. one of the yeah. things
0: is that for sure it makes it harder to leave. It also makes everything seem like from the perspective of this chemical. We induce like um, kind of intense depression. It makes every, everything seem like like totally like doomed and awful. Like you you when you when you're like reading about mold avoidance or whatever, yeah, uh, that's the best word we have for it. But I'll get into why it's more complex than mold later. But when you're reading about mold avoidance and you're in a like moldy home and sick and depressed. From the toxins, you like you're like this sounds so awful. Even though the truth of it is like you get to go to like like amazing places like Jackson Hole or whatever. I mean it's a hard life, I'm not downplaying that, but it's not such an awful thing. It, but you, it, when you're reading about it, it sounds so like oh my god, like I'll have to spend so much money and I have to like uh, you know leave all my prized possessions or my. It, Things that I love and I have a sentimental attachment behind, and I have to like it, it. Just sounds overwhelming and awful. And part of that is chemically induced, like kind of depression. I would say, right? I mean, it, it's not fun to read about mold or whatever mm-hmm. when you're at home. It makes it seem a lot more daunting and worse when you're in toxins and yeah. having a chemically
1: induced depression. Oh yeah, and completely. And I just that phenomenon alone kept me from leaving for so long when which is ridiculous but it's uh if I just listened to that and, and got out of there I would have felt so much better and I, I feel like I see this happen to a lot of people as well where it's the same thing they're aware of this going on it just sounds too daunting and so you get stuck uh, in a place that's moldy or not good mm-hmm.
0: yeah and I remember talking to you when this was happening and it, it was to the extent that you wouldn't believe your own yeah. senses you wouldn't yeah. believe your own evidence like, I was like man there you go you went to Jackson you felt amazing you went back you felt awful Like,
1: yeah Walker you, you definitely you got a lot of I think needed cajoling of me because I'm I would be stubborn like that for sure throughout a lot of this and you were like, dude, you need to listen, like I heard you, you sounded really good, uh, and you need to do this for you and unfortunately or fortunately you were totally right about it.
0: Yeah, well it wasn't that easy for me either, I mean, yeah, uh, getting out, but uh, I mean a lot of people run into that problem, but I'm not... Saying that to be down on you, it's just like funny how no, it's true. Okay, so we have like a category of illnesses where a lot of people don't believe the sick people, right? A lot of greater society, healthy people don't believe us, sick people. But what gets even crazier is people not believing themselves, like not believing their own symptoms because it's just like, yeah, totally inconvenient. And that's what I'm talking about with, like, yeah. But uh, at, uh, at some point around that time or past that time, you started doing avoidance for real because you had enough evidence and you finally got out of your house and you went to the Southwest and, um, in your car. Uh, exactly. So I, I want to hear about that journey.
1: Um, so eventually I exactly had enough evidence and... I packed up um, packed up car, which isn't always the greatest thing to use um, to bring any of your stuff or either bring a vehicle from a place uh, where you're
2: sick.
0: Um, right. It's a, just um, butt in for a second. Mm-hmm. The principle is that you don't want to let on um, the...
2: You don't
0: want to be the enemy of the good. Like you want to get out and not be paralyzed by analysis paralysis. I mean, like for a sabbatical, it's really not ideal when you're doing a test to have any of your stuff with you. And it's not ideal in general, but you had enough evidence. And so like going even with contaminated stuff to a better place is better than not going at all, which a lot of people end up not going because they get paralyzed by thinking about it or like I can't get a new
1: car or whatever mm, yeah no okay totally um very good point Walker and that's that is that's a big one to like hammer in there is like just right. just do it so yeah I left I left for the southwest um Wish. Oh you actually stopped in West Virginia like it told you to, right? Exactly. And I noticed and that was like another big point where I was like, okay, yeah, no, this is this is real. I stopped in West Virginia at a point that Walker said was good. I think it's the highest I don't know if it was the highest point on the East Coast. Yes or, it is. Bruce Knob. Yep. Um in Monongahela National Forest. And I felt amazing. Like I felt I feel like I felt like ecstatic. <laughs> I remember being up there and be like, oh my God, this this is real. This is way cool. So I made that stop and then I kept going uh, out west. I had the plan to settle somewhere so I could keep healing, um, becoming unmasked, um, learning about how to perceive whether or not a location is good or bad uh, but obviously ultimately it's just to to get better that's the whole point of learning about this and becoming aware of it is to get my health back which as you said on the phone yesterday is you have to sometimes you have to lose your health to realize that it's your wealth and i really yeah i feel like that's really true so i watched things like i couldn't digest gluten i couldn't eat dairy i couldn't eat nuts like um peanuts seeds anything like that so these are all gi issues um right all of that started to change even even pretty quick um things right. that i thought would be long term and right there's like a
0: predominant part of your symptoms is always been gi like and and neuropsychiatric
1: but also gi yeah i think the gi probably started actually in hampshire um Mm. especially getting especially bad um so yeah and i eventually ended up in new mexico um i went to taos new mexico first and had a That was pretty incredible it's a place i wanted to see and that was beautiful i spent i ended up going back there but initially i was there it was cold so i couldn't camp (laughs) so i kept going to try different places i yeah went from i think taos i went South, I want to say, into Arizona eventually, <clears throat> and during all this time, I'm learning my lessons because I'm still stubborn and still not believing my body and how it reacts. Um, I went to Tucson, Arizona, which is, uh, I love cacti a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they're really cool. To
1: be I I love, with no, like, cactus is like my favorite thing ever. So. I went to Tucson because they've got a lot of cacti, and I was. Tucson also has um, some of the worst contamination from something called Penetrant A, which is a. Uh, um, well, that's, to toxic that's
0: speculation. To be fair, we it's something we haven't studied. It's just that mm-hmm. we all talk about. Uh, we have anecdotal. And I would say it's anecdotal, but well organized and well thought out theories on like a few various outdoor toxins that cause biotoxins that cause specific sets of symptoms and the theory is that one of them that caught is the most uh is the sewer toxin that causes some of the worst stuff and some people call it mystery toxin um or just the bad uh, stuff or the sewer stuff um is penetrame, that's a theory. It's not something that's studied and proven yet because we have like no studies for this. But Sorry to interrupt, I just wanted to (laughs) make that clear. No, no, that's good and I think it's... We ran into what we call mystery toxic. We ran into like, yeah, describe some of that. I don't know.
1: Yeah, so I ran into that in Tucson because I was like I was like, oh, it's warm here I like the warmth. Um, Another thing that changes with with mold um, illness and then avoidance is I couldn't stand the cold at all. I had uh, I had a really difficult time in cold weather. So Taos mm-hmm. was too cold. Um that also has changed. Uh, the cold doesn't bother me, but yeah, Tucson was warm. Um uh, what I realized Taos is like cold
0: for like even the healthy people. Man, Taos is like people think of like the Southwest like it's all warm, but like Taos is a very high plateau near Colorado with like surrounded by mountains and like windswept and like maybe full of snow and cold arid nights. but yeah
1: um <laughs> yeah yeah you're so in Tucson and so I was in Tucson truck, yeah and I was texting you and being like Walker this place is cool and you're like dude it's not a good idea and then I went out in a thunderstorm to get some food from where I was camping. Uh, in the desert nearby Um, and there's just a small note is I really think that learning about this should be as available to people as many people as possible so there's a lot of free camping there's a lot of ways to do this on a very small budget Um, so I went in a thunderstorm which barometric pressure drops um, cause a release of mycotoxins Mm -hmm. and blood spores into an environment. And I remember going into Tucson, into the grocery store, and it felt like I was drunk, like my vision was blurry. I couldn't coordinate anything, and it felt like everyone else around me was like that. Everyone was angry (laughs) and... Like a bad trip. (laughs) It honestly, it kind of feels like a bad trip. Like it's almost psychedelic. It's that crazy and in the past i don't know what i would have thought of that i would have just blamed it on probably something i ate or i don't know who knows what um right and so then i crossed tucson off the list um and i think i went you liked las vegas nevada quite a bit
2: so i checked that out and i I like the area yeah i wouldn't say the city is like perfectly seen but it's like Reasonable, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, and I, I think I, I like the area surrounding as well, and I felt good out there. Um, the desert is pretty incredible, especially the red rocks. Um,
2: red rock, yeah.
1: Um, I also had an interesting experience in Las Vegas of uh going into a casino and going from i think it was like the biggest gradient shift i'd ever experienced was going uh from red rocks uh which most people consider to be really healing good air to the like center of uh, Las Vegas and to a casino and essentially having maybe a more extreme version of what happened in Tucson where it's like I couldn't see straight I felt like I was yeah. drunk um yeah within the span of like an hour right you're right because
0: there's a, there's a really like big contrast there and I, I would say there's probably a shift even along the drive it's, it might be hard to tell your car is bad enough to distract you, but there's like Red Rock Canyon conservation area. I would say is almost always. And I've been there a
2: lot. Yeah. I've been there a lot too.
0: A lot of time.
2: And
0: really pristine air, really healing. I love it. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Lots of, uh, 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 and like, yeah, lots of like red sandstone, uh, Aztec sandstone. Um, boulders that people climb on there's even a oasis part that well i won't get into that it's but it's like amazing air and then you drive the cool thing about red rock canyon and all that in the vegas area is that the vegas area doesn't sprawl that much like like los angeles like if you want to go to the desert from los angeles you're talking like maybe and i mean technically it's all desert but what i mean is like like a to Joshua really tree Desert. Like Joshua Tree. It's like a two hour drive at least. But like for Vegas, Summerlin, which is the western suburb, and um I also consider it to be one of the better parts of the Vegas area airwise, maybe just to top edge of the desert. From Summerlin, which is technically part of Vegas, to Red Rock Canyon, it's fifteen minute drive. It's just like right there. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the cool parts of it. And then so you're going from Red Rock Canyon probably to Summerland, which is like not as pristine maybe and especially in storm days or certain parts of it, there's going to be a little bit of empty or mystery toxin or outdoor toxin and then to the strip, which is just worse than all of the above. And then probably inside a casino that has Endermol. So you have a like you said, a gradient shift, that's
1: like a good experiment to get fuel. feel. EMFs which Yeah. Yeah, which is probably super heavy in Las Vegas and EMFs are electromagnetic frequencies, so that's yeah. um, some people are
2: sensitive to that for a yeah. number of different reasons. I don't
0: know if I am not everyone with
2: mold illness necessarily is, but yeah. for sure. Uh
0: it's a part of a lot of people's illness. And it's something that, yeah, is, I would say that I also think that even though we're focusing on mold illness, I do think that we should apply the precautionary principle to stuff like, um, 5G and, you know, even if we don't have evidence showing it's unsafe, we, should, we need to prove all that stuff safe first. I mean, we have, you know, there's no reason we need it. I mean, no one needs, like, to, like, download porn at, like, you know, it, it, a thousand terabytes <laughs> a second or whatever. Like, we already have,
1: you know. <laughs> and have that beamed like, from, like, outer Space. Have the fire yeah, beamed over.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right.
1: Like, so we should weigh the, like,
0: possible risk of anything novel like that that causes anecdotally problems in. Yeah, but that's, that's a side note. So you went to Vegas, and I think you also, and you went to Tucson, and they, I think I remember you, uh, yeah, so some of these places are places I haven't been, some you're just exploring. Um. By the way, since you're talking about wanting to see cacti, I do think that it's possible there's some pristine areas with, like, the saguaros. Like, I don't know, I haven't been, but some of the, like, uh, the Buenos Aires National Wildlife Refuge in the Sonoran, like on the near the border of Arizona, is not in the city of Tucson, and it has some good reports. So in the future, if you want to go to, like, part of the Sonoran Desert that isn't Tucson, that doesn't necessarily have as much toxins, that might be better.
1: But, yeah. uh Oregon Pike National Park, uh, for yeah. if anyone's listening, that's also supposed to be warm in the winter and be good air quality too
2: yeah
0: and so i think after that you went to southern new mexico right i think it,
1: it, or during part of that i mean i remember you talking about city oh,
2: rocks yeah
1: that's that's right silver city. Mm-hmm. i went to silver city um which felt good i was hoping it would be warmer than it was because i really didn't like cold at that time and wow. it was uh, it was pretty cool it was still chilly it didn't feel like exceptionally good air. That definitely was not like uh, how Taos felt.
0: Um, it's probably better than Tucson, though, right? Like, oh
1: yeah, no, it's. I would definitely say it's it's pretty good. And I think the surrounding areas, uh, there is there's a couple different mines, but the surrounding areas, uh, I felt, I felt pretty pretty dang good in there.
0: It's near the Gila. National Forest and Wilderness and Mountains. And it's called, I think, like the Gateway to the Gila National Forest. So there's a lot of like, uh, well, I won't say pristine because I haven't checked out myself, but there's a lot of remote, like wilderness areas and mountains right near Silver City, like outside Mm -hmm. of it. It's it's like an old western town kind of with that backdrop, the mountains and wilderness. So I could imagine that even like, a little bit outside of town, there's some really nice areas.
1: Exactly and I guess the point that both of us should make <clears throat> in this is a lot of times things um a lot of this can be confusing and things don't always uh work the way you would expect them to like a dry area still may make you feel um pretty sick if you're someone that's especially sensitive to mold or even if you're someone that is not um, like overtly sensitive, that maybe has long-term health issues or inflammation yeah. issues. Um, just going to like the desert outside of Phoenix, you might not, you still might be not feeling so good, and it's I, not always known why this is. Some of what you said before is there's different um, sewer molds that grow. There's a, the whole penicillin family of mold. Can emit some pretty crazy mycotoxins, especially in combination with human uh, like chemicals. Um, Yeah,
2: we we want to get into the
0: science of that later, but certainly I think the point is like a lot of people they're like, okay, we'll try this out and guess kind of begrudgingly maybe, or they don't know, yeah, and they go to like they go to like a city in the desert, and it's like that's not. We're talking about wilderness. Desert
1: isn't deserted wilderness. I mean, We're talking and, about that, but also feeling, learning how to detect
2: for yourself. Right.
1: Yeah, so you don't just go to Tucson and say, this didn't work
0: because I feel awful. Well, it's a city. I city. Mean, I mean, even some yeah. of these cities in the West aren't... Ne- might be dry, but are also even known to have conventionally, conventional particulate pollution problems. Like Salt Lake City, the inversion season, they call it is famous for the air pressure in the winter traps, like tons of particulate pollution there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like Denver is known to have some pollution problems. I mean, yeah, Edward Abbey was writing about this in both in, in, um, the Monkey Wrench Gang, which I haven't read all of, but. He's a favorite writer of mine for nature, for like eco-defense stuff and stuff about um, uh, nature, the sublime, um, the West, and like the wilderness noise. He's talking about how the Western cities are starting to get their, um, sadly, starting to get their pollution quotas up to the level of the Eastern ones. And this was probably in the 70s. Um, And it's true, um, even regular pollution, like Particular pollution, um, but also the reverse side of that is that not all areas that are like wet or are in the east or not in the west are necessarily bad. Like I, mm-hmm. that's why I, I told you to go to that area in West Virginia. Um, there are probably areas of New England. My sister, who is also somewhat sensitive to this, and I'll get into that later—families, genetics, etc.—she went to Acadia National Park in Maine recently. And felt really good. Um, there, are, so the, a lot of the reason I think people pick the West is not just because of the dryness, although that might help at least help with buildings and help with keeping your RV free but of mold and growth. But it's that a lot of the West is not arable agricultural land. If you look at the like pesticide map, there's like nothing. And we think that industrial toxins combine and agricultural toxins combine with the outdoor microbiome in ways that change it. And and there's just like a lot of the West that is still the, the only part of America that has huge tracts of old growth forests and wilderness left.
1: It's not that it's dry necessarily. Yeah, exactly. And that was even like it's not a new thing that was the Oh. Uh, that was I forget they would send people that were like malaise Tuberculosis. Sick. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you had T B it send you like Arizona or something. Um, or New Mexico.
0: There's sanatoriums in Albuquerque. Oh yeah. There you go. Right, yeah. Actually my mom said that they used to send people with asthma sometimes to the Bronx because it was a little bit higher up, but I don't know if that's such a good idea anymore. I don't know, um, but yeah. Uh, it, so yeah, they would send people to the west. So this, I would say that the there's a couple different concepts floating around. The concept of going out west to good air to heal, or going to the mountains, like if you're in a different part of the world, or or the seaside, just remote, pristine areas with various healing properties, like the Alps or the, the countryside, um, that's not a new phenomenon. We want to be clear on that. In fact, we have a lot of the national park system, partially because Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, was personally felt indebted to the wilderness for helping his asthma and his fatigue intensely. Yeah. So he yes. was like, um, it helped him so much that We thought we have to protect this. I mean, that's a really rational impulse to have a personal experience where you get healed by the environment and think we need to defend this because that's how I feel. I mean, I, before getting sick and realizing there's an environmental component, of course, I wasn't in favor of destroying the environment, but was it something that I thought, I can fight this battle or I need to be fighting this battle, not necessarily. It wasn't like my highest priority. And now I do think of it as like
2: eco-defense is self-defense.
1: Yeah, exactly. Eco-restoration. I mean, it's already been, the defense was (laughs) put down with the first waves of like smallpox introduced here and now it's like overgrazing uh bad farming practices now it's like you got to do what you can for the places that have been uh desertified yeah. or super superfund sites to help them to heal right yeah but
0: there's still well there's still like in the west there are a lot of there's a lot of public land not that all public land mean uh, like you know public land can still depending on the type of public land be um used for industrial purposes or um uh uh, ranching or um, uh, timber harvesting and logging, um, but to be fair, there there is there is still something to defend, especially in the West. In the East, there's sure. like a lot more, like uh, there's a lot less left in terms of wilderness. I would say, yeah, like parts of Appalachia are certainly an exception. You know parts of Maine for sure, but the, there's a, a little, there's definitely less of a percentage that is like public land, um, um, certainly less old growth forests and whatnot.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so in the West, there's certainly a lot to defend and it's under attack all the time. Um, but yeah, uh, I we kind of went on a little digression there about how this works um, and why it's not just um, about dry versus sweat And, and that also, there's some science that'll go into, you know, we want to intersperse this, but there's some science I'll go into that's speculative about the combination of industrial chemicals and microbes and the microbiome and molds. But, um, I want to get back to your story because your story's not over in this portion. We're still where you're exploring Silver City and, City of Rocks in Southern New Mexico and you're, I think, sleeping in your car, mostly car camping um, at this
2: point, right? Exactly. Yeah. And not settled down.
1: No, I was, I was still looking around and I was still uh, learning to perceive like what felt good, what didn't feel so good. And I, I really feel like that, like also during this whole time, I was still skeptical. Like I was still like ah, you know is this real am I actually affected by this but I was, I would get places and I would feel so good that I was like okay you know what there's something to this and it's and it's like profound profoundly good like wow I haven't felt this way since I was a little kid kind of thing
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, yeah yeah again like um, playful and happy I mean yeah
1: yeah exactly and uh, it was definitely not easy but uh, throughout this, that period of time, I was becoming less skeptical and also learning, okay, this place is good, this place is not good. My brain likes this here, but my body doesn't like it. So I think it was especially a lot of just kind of listening, learning how to listen to my body and eventually, um, eventually ending up. Uh, settling in New Mexico. Uh, in Taos, right? In Taos. At first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You've been through a couple different places, but you've, you found a housing situation in Taos. Um, mm-hmm.
1: That was clean. There
2: was no mold in Yeah. It. Mm-hmm.
0: And you were working, and that, it, like, so you had quit working before. So I imagine even, like, with some level of healing, it wasn't easy to do that, but... Kind of says something that you were able to go back to work and also mm-hmm. that you know you're making this work with while still like you know trying to stay in clean air as much as
1: possible yeah no, um, exactly exactly uh, unfortunately the place I worked was <laughs> was uh, uh it was making me it was it was a pretty gnarly environment but in terms of toxins, in terms of, I think mold, I mean, you could even smell it in, in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, okay. Where I was, but uh, you are correct about that, Walker.
0: Yeah. But you balance that. Talk, talk about how you balance that. Because people call it balancing the books in the mold whites community. If you have to spend time in a place that's bad.
1: So if you have to spend time in a place that's bad, uh, balancing the books would be. Um, I mean, it was. Quite literally, for me, it was just going after work to walk by uh, the Rio Grande River runs through Taos, and it's uh, really nice over there. So I'd walk there, it'd feel amazing, or I'd even just walk through some parks in town pretty much every day after working. Mm -hmm. And, And that would help balance the books, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah
0: yeah and if i just if i may say this like we've been talking a lot about toxins, I also want to talk a little bit about the beauty of the southwest house um yeah donald trump place it's terrific it's <laughs> it's huge there's a huge mesa it's it's very very beautiful uh we love we love our mesas folks but seriously um house is is um uh when we're talking about towns, we're talking about like the area of towns. There's a number of unincorporated communities in Tazewell County. I mean, there's the town, but I think where you were working was actually on the mesa. And then there's the Rio Grande Gorge Bridge, and um, uh, just this huge mesa west and northwest of town. That um, there are a number of communities on, but there's also people living off grid a lot. It's famous for off grid living because of some zonings particularities but um the Rio Grande Gorge is just this huge rift that's like um I think sort of like related like it's not the continental divide in that it's not the Rockies but it's called the continental rift or something I may be wrong it's a huge rift in the middle of New Mexico and in Taos it's so dramatic and so sublime. like you stand on the gorge bridge it is one of the highest um gorge bridges in the world, and um, or in America at least. I know the New River Gorge Bridge in West Virginia, an area I've been looking at for avoidance, possibly is higher, but the Taos one is very high. Um, and it's, in a way, even though I've been to the Grand Canyon, and I've been there for avoidance reasons, <laughs> um, but also it's a cool place. In a way, the Taos Gorge um, is almost more dramatic because it's it's on a scale where it's like a smaller scale. So it's a little bit more, it's less like your brain just gets overloaded by the size. It's like, um, it is very big, but it's also a scale that you can comprehend. And it's just this huge rift in a sagebrush and, uh, black rock, volcanic rock mesa and, uh, goes down into the, um, In a kind of canyon gorge where um, the sides are covered in that sage and black volcanic rocks, and it goes down into like a small river way at the bottom. And if you, and and the, if you, I I love it in winter with like the snow covering the whole mesa and the snow capped mountains in the background, and it, it just almost reminds me of the Himalayas. A little bit because you have this high step environment that's just really like flat and wide and huge in all directions with a really big sky and then mountains in the background but yeah um that's the area just like to give listeners a kind of picture of taos in the area a lot of people think of new mexico and are like literally surprised that to hear that there's snow and cold, <laughs> but New Mexico, yeah, is very much a lot of the state is mountains. A lot of it's snow and
1: cold, yeah. <laughs> Even Albuquerque is—I um, want to say it's between like five thousand feet up to like sixty-five hundred feet or sixty-two hundred feet. So I mean, that's that's kind of on par with Denver. So that kind of helps get the picture.
0: Um. So yeah. Albuquerque is further south than Denver, so it is warmer, but it is basically the same um, height, and then there are the East Mountains and neighborhoods that are up in the Sandias. Um, but you, so you lived in the house for a while, um, and it was killing, but you had to work at that job. That's difficult. I want to put in a word for uh, talking about that this problem. like. Um, I wasn't, I was so sick when we have done avoidance that I wasn't able to work at all and I've been on disability. Um, it might sound like, you know, from, it, it, it's diff, it's difficult to like convey illness over a picture or over listening to someone speak, but you know, I have to take lots of palliative meds to even do the podcast um, and avoid crashing. Like talking is not always easy for me even. Um, when I'm very sick but when you get when you're in a when you don't have disability money even when you do it's not a lot of money but when you don't have disability money and you're balancing healing and working, especially if work involves being in a bad environment, um, that can be tough. so um speak on that struggle a little bit and then after that I want to hear about, uh, your move to Albuquerque and just like the different places you've been in New Mexico a little
2: bit.
1: <laughs> Walker, Walker, you like to live vicariously through the
3: through invention.
1: <laughs> um but yeah, working, uh, as you said, working is tough. Um, when you're in a work environment, that's, um, not good. I mean, working even, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but yeah, working working through this and through the healing is, it is difficult. Um, And I I think I've also come to realize how much in the past I've really been an extreme, extreme, extreme burnout. From pushing myself to just pay rent and bills and everything on time um, and not taking care of my body or my health. There's a lot of parts of detoxing as well when your body is in a good environment. You start to let like, go of past toxins, maybe that have been stored for a couple of years, maybe like a lifetime, um, and I mean it's it can be really intense, uh, without a doubt. So working through that is difficult, and. If you're in that position, I think it's important to really see if you can find uh, something that's conducive to your healing. So whether that's being uh, outside, whether it's like parks and rec department or something where that you can work on your computer as well. Uh, that could be really helpful as long as your computer is uh, you feel you know OK using your computer. Uh, but then you can essentially create your environment, your home environment, and work environment. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of my recommendation.
2: So, yeah, but yeah, even is,
0: even then, it can be tough because like some people are sick enough that they basically like can't tolerate most buildings, and they might need to be camping and camping can be like a full-time job just like
1: setting up camp um yeah I mean there's no pretty way to say it I mean it's it's really not ideal to be it it feel it's a little bit like you got to choose one or the other um, yeah I've lucked out a little bit with some farm work even that yeah. though could be that could be really hard because there's a lot of times where um the thing with this is like when you Feel fatigued or, t- or tired, it's usually just not a. It's not a good idea to to try and overwork yourself or push through it. Um, right. it's Yeah. That's pretty bad idea. So that's that's definitely. All right. So yeah, it, it feels a little bit like yeah. one or the other.
0: Um, and I'm not saying we're not saying this to be like um, if you you know, have to make money and work and you also have to have health issues. Don't do mold avoidance or whatever. The point is more reach out for any kind of financial support you can. I mean like I think there's no shame in doing like fundraisers. A lot of people started their mold avoidance journeys now. But I know I know someone I think thinking of a couple people at least, but at least one person I know is a really successful, really great Motivator, um, who I believe started with like a GoFundMe, and there maybe church community. I'm not sure. Their community in general really like felt that not everyone has a good support network, and it's not ideal to have to do that. But that's the reality. I mean, disability takes a while to apply for. For some of these illnesses, you don't always get it. I was lucky to get it, but even what I get is like pennies on the dollar compared to like a lot of expenses. Um, so that's a reality. It's not, I'm not bringing this up to say all these daunting things to not, to not leave your environment and not try this. It's just sometimes difficult. Although some people made remote work work, especially when they improve a lot from, um, avoidance, but I'm just saying, talking about the struggle to make it clear that like, um, If you see someone fundraising for this, you're like, why can't they work? I mean, like camping is difficult and camping off grid, especially, which is often the best place to be. You don't necessarily want to be near a bunch of RVs and toilets um, is, is, is a job. Um, Yeah. And, and this is something that this is a reason for homelessness for one thing. Um, a lot of people won't even think of themselves as homeless even as they're like homeless doing this because maybe they have come from, they don't think of uh, the illness as a valid reason for houselessness and homelessness. But like, I mean, if you are not able to tolerate many homes and you're like living out of your car or whatever, e- even in the cold and all of that, like, you're homeless, I don't know, or at least you're houseless, it's, you know, it's a real thing, and it's a a phenomenon that I would say is, like, more widespread than most people realize. Yeah, definitely.
2: Definitely. And a lot of, like, the free housing things,
0: like public housing, are known to be, have really bad practical
1: uh, problems. Yeah, that's that's something that that's something that's really good to, I think, bring up more about this, and also to emphasize and like try and make guidelines on how to do this with when you're, yeah, when you don't have any financial support. Um, yeah, it's really tough. It's tough, but it's possible. I think it's just, I think it's learning, and I think right. the the ways to do it aren't. You can't just look it up. You can't say, okay, here's an RV and an RV site. It might be emailing um, or getting trying to contact. A lot of people don't even have computers or internet access unless you go to a library. But if you're able to email people that have uh, like workaways or woofing, uh, these are volunteer type things. Some of them are paid. Um, some of them might let you stay there for free. So there's ways. I don't think it's clear. It's not clear yet how to how to do that.
2: Right.
0: Well, yeah. It's very. It's tough. I'm not saying it's not doable or to not do it.
2: I'm bringing that up to like show the struggle because there are there are a lot of people that I think of as very
0: skilled multipliers who struggled a lot just because it's intrinsically a difficult thing to do. Is regardless, but then when you those people often. Some of them had
2: fairly good middle class
0: situations that made it easier financially to have their skills and struggle because even if you have that, it's not easy. I mean, it's difficult emotionally. It's difficult to leave your house and like communities behind. Um, But for people that don't have that at all, they don't have a house to sell, they don't have assets to sell, they're asset for and cash for. It can be really difficult, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try it. I mean, there's like, there's so many levels and ways to
1: do this. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try it, and it especially means that you should like, I don't know, just try and talk to people and reach out. Like, don't be quiet.
0: Yeah. for sure. Find ways to do it, find support, Find a support system I and mean, ask for what you need. Um, but yeah, uh, I wanted to get so you at some point moved from Taz to Albuquerque. Um, like, uh, yeah, I wanted to get back to your journey because you're digressing a little bit. But talk about that.
1: Sure. So I eventually made the move right from
2: to the East Mountains first.
1: Yeah, which was is near Albuquerque. Right, and this probably i most people aren't going to be too familiar with this, but it could be helpful if you decided to come to New Mexico.
2: Um, Since
1: um, New Mexico can be a little bit cheaper to live, especially than New York. I don't know about Vermont. Um, And outside of Albuquerque by 30 minutes, there's uh, what's called the East Mountains. And it's a... uh, mountain range, uh, essentially running north of Albuquerque. I don't know how many miles, but it's for me, it was healing. I definitely did a lot of healing and felt really good there. Um, It's cheaper to live up there as well. So that's helpful. And I eventually uh, moved to Albuquerque, which as far as the city goes is honestly, it's pretty, it's pretty good. It's pretty
2: relatively it's pretty cheap, clean, and it's pretty yeah. cheap.
0: Yeah. Compared to like, oh my god, man! Compared to like Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco rents, Albuquerque is insanely cheap. Um, but I I don't know personally. I haven't checked out like any apartments there. I've stayed in hotels in Albuquerque. And I know a little bit of the outdoor air, less than you for sure. Um, right. It is a re- it is pretty reasonable of a city in terms of outdoor air. Um, yeah,
1: it it definitely is. It definitely, it depends where you are.
0: Um, right. Um, Every city has micro areas, which is something we're going to talk about, like like plumes areas that are like veterans within the city. Even in a simple grid city like Albuquerque, I would say to me, I think of. I think you sent me a trailhead that's like on the Northeast Heights area of Albuquerque, which is very near, like just these suburbs on the Northeast uh, edge of the city and the desert near the foothills of Sandias. And uh,
1: I felt pretty good there even in winter, which is not the best season for air. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it is, I think it's pretty good for a city. Um, it's actually far better I've I've found than Santa Fe Um, which you wouldn't you know again it's not something you'd expect because there's lots of industry there's pollution etc in Albuquerque I don't think horrible amounts
0: Santa Fe has this like reputation people have even called it a healing vortex it has this new age healing reputation Mm. and um, I think it's important to like not to be mean, but to like bust myths a little bit. It is really a really tough city in terms of air. It is, in the whole area. Um, uh, and I do not. Maybe it was healing. Honestly, I can totally believe that it was healing. Like maybe in the seventies when this reputation started. <laughs> yeah, probably it Places change over time. But I don't know, but yeah. Talk talk a little bit more about you. You know, um, just. Just for fun, just because this is an example, and I'm going to talk about um, some of the idea of micro areas and plumes, and also talk about the scientific part of the outdoor toxins. But just talk about your experience um, in terms of Albuquerque. Not just like that; it's pretty good for a city. But just like I don't know, when you like drive around and notice plumes in different areas, you know the city by their than me, you could talk about, like, just give as an example, like, of a city, break it down, like, and, and I would include the East Mountains, because they're, like, kind of suburbs of Albuquerque, just break down, like, what, what it's like in terms of the good zones, the bad zones in between, and
1: what the seasonal changes are, just go into it. Okay. Um... I want to be as helpful as I can, so I'll try and be concise. Bad zones I've found are by the river, the Rio Grande, which is the agricultural part of the city. Some of it's also protected, so you can walk and bike there. It's really beautiful. Um I don't, unfortunately, I usually don't. I feel not so good there. Um there's a lot of microclimates, I would say, in Albuquerque. and a lot of places, you can go down one street and feel, and I'll feel good. And the next street over, or even down the block, um, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling good. And uh, that is unfortunately the nature of a city. And that's like, it's not a bad place to start or come back to once you're less sensitive. Um, but i wouldn't i still don't think it's ideal uh to to live here but it's not it's easy to find um a place to live i guess i would say um although so much of the housing is still is still not good um sorry I'll get back to your point so a lot of stuff by the river is I find is not so good. It's not always that way. Rainstorms, cloudy days, um, I don't feel good. Going up different parts of the city, usually higher elevation is good. And that's not always true. Um, I live kind of surrounded by like concrete, and it's kind of it's a little weird. Honestly, it's not anywhere I would choose to live if I didn't have to be so careful. Um, but actually, right here, which is kind of in the middle of the city, the air is, uh, the air is good. Um, Interesting. So downtown, like Old Town? No, no, uh-huh. no. definitely not that, n- not that far down. It is it is still higher elevation than the true, than like the valley of Albuquerque. Okay. Um, so
0: like north, northeast, or er,
1: north? More southeast, actually. Uh, okay. Um, okay. Um, so then going up into the mountains there is progressively better. There's some uh fire, forest fire retardant that's been used, um, which Walker can go into. There's also agriculture. Um so the East Mountains depends where you are. There are mm-hmm. some places I feel like, oh
2: yeah, this is good.
1: Some places I'm
2: like, yeah, I'm like,
1: I'm like jam it out,
2: because I
1: feel so good. Um, yeah. Well, exactly. I'm
0: not as familiar with it as you. You gave a nice overview. I will say that Albuquerque, yes, in general, I've just found it to be less noxious than Santa Fe, and it's the place we go where, like, when... Even though it's, like, inconveniently far from some of the parts of northern New Mexico that I really want to be, like, Taos or whatever, it's the place we go if, like, say... We're camping, but it's too cold to camp, and then we have to stay in a hotel in Albuquerque, like stay in a new hotel in a not-that-bad city, or there's wildfire smoke, which is a thing, and, you know, unfortunately, when you're camping, uh, you can't necessarily have an air purifier, and that sometimes happens, so Albuquerque would be, like, the place that I think of as a medium, a decent place to um, go, and then... And then while I'm there, if I wanted to get to a slightly better place, I might go to, like, I have a spot, it's secret. Well, yeah, I'm not going to tell the listeners it's secret, because you should all find your own spots if you're working on this. But I have a spot in the Sandias um, uh, that, well, within Cibola National Forest that I really like. um, It's like just a little
2: picnic area
0: up in the Sandias Probably like a couple thousand feet higher than the city, um, in the woods. And it's really, um, better air than the city. Um, and it's really pretty good. Um, so, and it's not that far of a drive. It must be like 20, 30 minutes max. Um, so you, from, from like downtown. So that's, that's part of the thing with cities is if you do have to spend time in a city, um, you want like, to find a place right outside of it or not that far to, like, go and get good air. I was going to bring in my recent experience. Um, I have issues beyond environmental sensitivities, just that are things that have to be dealt with surgically, for example. So I've had a lot of medical appointments, which has brought me to New York City. And the crazy thing is, and you really – this goes to what a lot of the experienced avoiders say – you cannot exactly predict. You cannot like go by theory and think this place will be good, this place will be bad. New York City is not that terrible of a city. I know I said that after Jacob talked about his experiences, but we're talking about micro areas, and he was not living in Manhattan, correct? Mm-hmm. Um Pretty so cool. I have not found Manhattan to be that bad. Um I have not found Queens. Be that bad, although I've not spent a lot of time there. I found Long Island, at least the part I've been in, which is not the far end, it's not the like really nice Hampton's end, but it's a big island. I've found Long Island to be pretty bad, Um, but Queens and Manhattan so far have not been that bad, especially like Midtown and Uptown Central Park. I did, and this speaks to what you said about the career, is like one street's bad, one street's good, Run to just a really nasty cloud of, pretty nasty cloud of empty that really, like I was and it immediately just like sense of doom and hopeless feeling in Tompkins uh, Square Park, actually. And that I forget whether that's the village, it's near the village at least, yes, Lower East Side Village. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that felt bad. And then parts of Northern New Jersey, I'm not talking Newark, which I've heard to avoid, but just a lot of Northern, um, New Jersey, the rural and suburban parts aren't, isn't that terrible airwise. Um, so, um, uh, that's been part of surviving being out here for like the medical stuff. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, so we talked about our respective experiences, um, but I wanted to get a little bit into science because we're bringing up a, a lot of terms like mystery toxin, uh, sewer toxins, outdoor toxins, fire retardant, we talk About, but without talking about science. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of skepticism, even though we're talking about experiences that are pretty, um, dramatic, but. I had what initially even got me to try this was talking to a guy named Eric Johnson who had scientific theories about what causes this increase in mold toxicity and pathogenicity. I mean, and he was talking about the combination of mold and industrial chemicals in some way making each other worse uh, and making the mold worse and more pathogenic. Um, and uh, the specific science behind that I can go into briefly we We would have to do a whole nother episode to get into detail, but I just I want to bring it in a little bit so that people are not so skeptical and so they understand why you know this stuff mold that is just this natural stuff that grows on bread or whatever and is not like we don't think of as like something that causes brutal, severe illness does cause brutal, severe illness in certain circumstances. And um, one of the theories is that mold, and I actually have a paper on this um, that I've found. It sounded like I meant co-authored, but no, a paper that I found in the journal PFAS. Uh, I believe it's a pretty um, good journal. And it talks about mold spores um, attracting nanoparticles of industrial material to the surface of the spore, and then it changing the spores, pathogenicity, and they studied this in, in mice, and the, the mold spores that had nanoparticles on them, on the surface, um, uh, were, caused more inflammatory, uh, changes in mice, um, more inflammatory cytokines, and they both did this in the lab, and then they also sampled mold spores from construction sites and found that they attracted nanoparticles of industrial materials to them. So that's one theory: is that mold uh, combined with nanoparticles, which we know nanoparticles um, uh, uh, pollution we know is a problem on its own, but combined with mold, it you know it causes the spores have a different charge, it causes them to you know, have a different kind of surface energy, it causes them to interact in the body differently. Um we also um just we yeah, so when we talk about conventional air pollution, um air quality index, etc. Um you're talking about PM two point five, that's twenty five hundred nanometers, I believe. So we're talking about all of the stuff that we study in terms of air pollution, almost all of it is way bigger than nanoparticles. So we don't even consider nanoparticles enough in terms of health effects, even though we know they're emitted by various activities, everything from military high heat explosions that, you know, create um, very, very small particles to certain types of car exhaust. and just lots of stuff creates nanoparticles and so it's a, it's a case of size matters in terms of pathogenicity and they combine with mold then there's another theory which um I want to get into a little bit like another theory of like the mold industrial toxins and this is one that is not studied a lot at least in these specific illnesses or with mold but it's this idea of extending the theory of the microbiome beyond just talking about the gut microbiome to talking about the outdoor microbiome, the indoor microbiome. Because microbiome just means, um, like microbial, uh, environment or microbial biome. It doesn't necessarily mean gut microbiome, but we almost always just hear it in terms of the gut microbiome or commensal, like microbes that inhabit our gut. But. The microbes also inhabit the world outside of us, and they have health effects in that in that um, role. I am really big on this idea that the chemicals we use change the outdoor and indoor microbiomes. And, um, you know, the way, uh, you know, any medical professional listening to this or someone who maybe has had an unfortunate experience with this is familiar with if you have like a really bad course of antibiotics or nasty course of antibiotics overuse, you could develop seed diff. It's like a bad infection because you're wiping out microbial diversity and allowing nastier pathogens to take over or candida. That I am of the opinion, and it's supported by some evidence, not enough study yet, that that happens in the outdoor microbiome, that if you wipe out microbial diversity in the outdoor microbiome that nastier molds, nastier pathogens will take over. And also that if you take away a diversity of like forests and flora, um, that the same thing will happen because those things have filtering roles. Trees have filtering roles. Um, And there are studies proving this there's studies showing that, for example, when you use Roundup glyphosate pesticide really extensively in corn fields that, uh, oh yeah, it's an herbicide, that um, fusarium mold grows like in big amounts um, that didn't normally grow in the wake of Roundup. So um, there's some study on that, but not enough study. Um, I was looking at a study recently called um, uh, Something Like the Built Environment is a Microbial um, Wasteland. That was the title. And the, there's some interesting stuff to get into in these studies, but we can't cover all the science. I just wanted to kind of bring up the science I know, in my theories as context, because Jacob, um, you're interested in remediation and in this idea in permaculture and this idea that that's connected to how we can heal some of these outdoor environments.
1: Yeah, exactly. Many people even that do these things talk about the as above, so below effect where you're working on healing the environment and they're seeing themselves also be healed while they're doing that.
0: Yeah, and you, your kind of ultimate dreams or plan is to have, like, uh, a kind of permaculture area that's also a safe haven for um, people with
1: environmental sensitivities? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I was thinking about tying that in before with, like, the economic difficulty of doing avoidance is like i think you and i both realize that it's like if there if only there was a place somewhere pretty clean that we could go to that we know that we knew the outdoor air was good we knew the indoor air would be good it would even just have to be like a canvas uh, wall tent for example yeah that would have helped like so just immensely in getting better Um, yeah i want to talk to people
0: also you're you're talking about permaculture and Mm -hmm. i'm sure you bring some of this stuff up like the environmental illness with permaculture people but i um also want to talk more to people that are like especially like young and progressive forest rangers and park rangers about stuff like this, because I, you know, recently had a lot of conversations with a forest ranger, someone who works in the national forest in West Virginia, um, who, you know, was throwing out ideas of like where I could stay and talking about how it was so interesting to hear from someone who, does this for health, not just for the views and the Instagram, but, um, oh yeah, what was it going to bring up? We mentioned in passing. So now that I like, you know, brought up some of the scientific reasoning, I wanted to briefly go over some of the more anecdotal terms that as a community you have for some toxins, because yeah, some of this is might be interesting for people that are sick and Know about indoor mold, but don't know about these. We, we touched on mystery toxin or the sewer toxin, what Jacob says may be penetrant A. Um, also connected to like solvent use and superfund sites and places like the Bay Area, but quite a few different cities. I guess I'd say it's known to be like the most prevalent in Houston, Dallas, um, Pacific Northwest cities, um, San Francisco, but even more so like the Silicon Valley area in Palo Alto, um, and Tucson and Phoenix, maybe to a lesser extent Phoenix. I would say probably prevalent in almost every city. I'm just naming the ones where it's like really, really prevalent. Um, You know, it's still prevalent a bit in uh, Las Vegas, especially in. Uh, winter and in the downtown area, but there's that toxin and that's a toxin we associate with sewers and to some extent tech development and stuff. Um, it's even prevalent in some smaller cities and towns, like, um, and then I was going to, then there's, um, building mold. Um, then there's cyanotoxins, which can be a problem both in, um, in, uh, cyanobacteria toxins, which can be a problem in both waterways, but also desert soil in certain areas. And in fact, that's something that's less anecdotal, just anecdotal and scientifically recognized because there were these cyanotoxins in the desert in Kuwait that they think are responsible for the high rates of ALS in Gulf War veterans. They produce BMAA neurotoxin, Then um, I think the um, final main one, unless I'm, yeah, well, there is a couple ones. There's one people call it hell toxin. That's a little more controversial, involves like intense cross-contamination. People think it's related to graphene nanoparticles. And there's a lot of theories about that one. But the one that I am personally a bit irked by the existence of, because it's not just prevalent in civilization. It's, something that makes even national parks and wilderness and forests a problem is um, fire retardant associated toxin. Um, And that is a bummer to me because it's I have experienced it a little bit. I'm not as reactive to it, nor have I had as much experience in the places where it's really heavy as many people. But I have had some and it's basically hypothesized to be a microbe that grows in the wake of heavy fire retardant usage of um, stuff like Foschek, these newer fire retardants, the red foam that you see being dumped everywhere. And um, it is really a bummer that this exists. If things keep going poorly, we could see the West not being as much of a refuge as it has been for environmentally ill people in the future the bummer the real bummer is that it's not necessary because i mean well none of these toxins are necessary but especially like fire suppression is the way we do it is not a rational strategy to control fire a lot of the west is supposed to burn periodically and yet we focus obsessively on uh fire suppression at the expense of a healthy forest, especially in places like California, where there's lots of wealthy homeowners who vote in kind of policies like this. I mean, look at like Malibu. We subsidize um, heavy fire suppression to save these mansions in a place that really should be burning like every year. Okay, so yeah, um, that was basically my spiel on... That, oh yeah, and I realize I want to bring in one more thing scientifically, um, is that um, we have talked a lot about just our sensitivities, but there are some formal diagnoses for environmental sensitivities. One of them is um, mast cell activation syndrome, and this is not like, might be a little bit controversial, but it is recognized by mainstream medicine. And it's where your mast cells, which are a type of innate immune cell, um, white blood cell involved in allergy and immune response, um, are said to overreact to various environmental triggers. Um, I was diagnosed with this before I ever did mold avoidance based on the high levels of tryptase and histamine in the blood, but also just clinically diagnosed, like based on my symptoms. Um, and then recently, my sister, who's also has similar reactions to mold and after toxins to me, was diagnosed with it. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out is just like, um, yeah, I have had that formal diagnosis, but also I took a lot of the meds for it. And while that was somewhat helpful, it wasn't anywhere near enough until I did avoidance Um and. Uh, going to pristine areas was more help, more important to me than just staying in a bad area and taking meds to suppress my immune response um, What are
1: some of the symptoms of that
0: well because um, mm, uh, I can talk about my symptoms, but they're they 're so varied because it 's just basically a syndrome that means that you have a type of Almost allergy based, but it can be more neurological than a classic allergy response to like a number of uh,
1: it's triggers. A So histi-
0: to, right? to basically anything.
2: Yeah.
0: Like um, I would say, I mean, for me, I had skin flushing and rashes, hives, just like whenever I was inside the house. I also had a lot of food intolerances that are less so um, in good air. My sister and I joke that like, well, it's not really a joke so much. as just like a funny thing that we've noticed. It's just like, it's better to be eating like fast food, like in and out, which is one of the best parts of the Southwest in the desert than to be eating like whole foods in an awful house. (laughs) Um, So yeah, if you want to heal enough to have food intolerance, go away and eat in and out in Red Rock Canyon. That's something <laughs> you can make me look forward to. Um, but yeah, so hives and flushing skin reactions are part of mast cell activation syndrome. Food intolerances um, and all of what goes with that, um, but also brain fog um, and fatigue. So there's a lot of overlap between MCA and chronic fatigue syndrome symptoms, and heart racing. And then some people have some pe peop, some people go all the way up to having full blown idiopathic anaphylaxis where they have anaphylaxis even to things that on an allergy test they're not allergic to. So you don't even have any predictability over where you'll what you'll have anaphylaxis to. Wow. Um yeah. Like I think um Simka talked about that.
2: Right.
0: He he's someone um for the listeners in our multiple advanced communities, but talked about having, yeah, like idiopathic just going into anaphylaxis a lot of the time to random triggers. Um yeah.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It I would also I would imagine it causes a pretty strong inflammatory response like stain. In it? Like, if you kept doing that? Is your body kind of in a constant state of inflammation
2: from histamines? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's histamine, but it's not just histamine, which is why it's not just a classic allergy response. It has, Uh, like, it can almost give, like, a uh, flu-like feeling because you have have, uh, cytokines, which are, like, uh, things that Made, they're the things released by the innate immune system that huh. are inflammatory that make you they're the things that when you feel like shit when you have the flu that's cytokines um and it's not and autoimmune. yeah and, yeah and it is essentially a type of autoimmune interesting um illness huh. but um a lot of that went away when doing avoidance um i still think mast cell stabilizers and meds but y- You know, they didn't do shit when I was in off, like a really awful, they didn't do shit when I was in a really awful environment. And you can't just expect to stay in an awful environment and necessarily be able to medicate it away, which, um, unfortunately, is sometimes the mainstream, uh, Approach like to mass true. activation, syndrome. Some doctors are a little more woke and
2: will help people to get out of their environments.
0: I want to end on two two notes. One of them was to um, talk about how, you know, people, family members that don't understand will often see this as like, especially if you're fundraising for it, as like a vacation because you're going to pretty places. Like we agreed Taos is gorgeous, right? Mm -hmm. And when people hear Taos, they also think of the ski resort, not the like, you know, homeless people and impoverished areas and um or even like the off-grid living or all that they think of like ski resort house right like i'm sure you've experienced that right yeah, yeah. if
2: yeah.
0: you've brought that up to people oh, yeah. but especially from the east coast um that don't know house very well but it's not a vacation it's really difficult the benefits Vastly outweigh the cost, but that doesn't mean there aren't costs. You know, we've I I'm sure you have too. I've slept in the car in freezing temperatures um, because a hotel was bad or because I couldn't afford a hotel at that time. Um Things like that. Um, and you know, uh, luckily I haven't been stung by a scorpion yet, but I've been all around them. There, yeah, there's lots of fun stuff and difficult stuff with um living in wilderness spaces and um in living without solid housing and stability and um and it's not a vacation and then i also want to say it's interesting and i'd like to hear your thoughts on this too to think back to like um the environments that you get a lot of Hindsight, wisdom, and retrospect about environments that may have been better or worse for you, even before you were totally uh, doing mold avoidance and unmasked. And maybe even before you were very ill. And one of them is just insights about the Western mask area that we both know. Um, mostly that it's just mostly bad. Although I especially just think of, um, uh, I actually think it's better in the winter months when the ground is frozen. I especially think of um, you know walking by a lot of the cornfields or farm, just farms in Hadley when in the spring and summer, when the especially in the spring when the ground is just becoming like um, like muck and just like awful um, symptoms that at the time I did not associate with my environment at all but um just um there are emotional symptoms and like sense of doom and depression but there's also like heavy brain fog and also a symptom like my brain was on fire that's hard to put into words but yeah uh, uh so beyond the hampshire dorms which we've established are probably pretty nasty <laughs> there's the outdoor air and that area, which I think is like pretty much bad for everyone. I actually, again, the the friend I talked about that had the asthma issues in Greenwich, um, lived in Western Mass for a bit and then moved to New York City, felt better in New York City, which people, again, don't think of as like, it's a big city, but he went from rural Western Mass to New York City and felt a lot better once back in Manhattan. yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that area in hindsight?
1: Well, if you want to move to New York City, that's going to be a lot more expensive for mold avoidance than camping.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I mean, no, about kidding. the West, Western yeah. Mass area.
1: Um. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. Honestly, like even hearing you say that now, I'm skeptical. I'm like, really? How could it all be bad? But every time I'm skeptical of something like that, and people seem to say, or you, and um, it almost always turns out to be correct, but I like to, I generally have to go and like, see for
2: myself. Um, well,
0: I don't think it's all bad, and when I say Western Mass, I'm kind of referring to just the Pioneer Valley, because then there's the Berkshires, which yeah, a lot of people have said might be good. I don't think a lot of Moldevoiders have been there, but there are mountains, I'm just referring to like, and I think especially like the flat farmland areas like Hadley and South Amherst. I think of as especially nasty. And like I said, it's seasonal. I don't know. If I was to go back, I would try, I would try areas up on the hill in Northampton more, like up, or maybe parts of Greenfield. I remember there's a permaculture farm I worked on in the greater Pioneer Valley area, but I don't remember where that was pretty hilly. And I think it um, may have been better. But okay. I also think the Hampshire woods, as weird as it sounds, because they're very, it's a very small area. um, was better air than the campus in general. And yeah.
1: Yeah, that kind of, yeah, I agree. I don't know, man. I, I feel like I just didn't know for so much of that, and I just could look back in hindsight and be like, uh, "Yeah, wow, okay." I think that whole that whole area probably didn't made me feel not so good, and um, it just uh, I remember being in Hampshire, and I had really bad insomnia, like extreme, coupled with I'd say pretty extreme anxiety too, even before. That the second year where I left, uh, social anxiety and and all these things that I thought were just, oh, you know, it's just have to deal with it or talk to a psychologist. And and I remember feeling that all the time. And of course, that's extremely uncomfortable for anyone who's dealt with uh, any of those things. Uh, And in hindsight, it's like, I think what we need to touch on is like the positive. Um, is that just all of that has gone away for me as I've gotten better and getting better has meant getting out of some of these places like Hampshire, Western Mass, uh, where I'm from in New York, or even just a moldy house in Los Angeles. Um, like, yeah, all these things I never would have, that I thought were... Just permanently there for me. They go yeah, they go away and that's that's what's crazy. So I yeah. don't know, maybe Western Mass. Uh and never felt amazing, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I
0: well, I mean the fact that, you know, I've talked to that friend I mean, I have a bad I think it's important to trust your intuitions and avoidance and especially if they're not fear based. And it's not like a fear-based thing where one is panicking and just being like, oh, I just got to get out of all of Massachusetts. But I just do have a strong intuition that a lot of that area, especially like the swampy um, farm fields and stuff in Hadley are bad. Not necessarily every single inch of Western Mass. But yeah, I do remember, you know, when I was at school, hindsight – is really interesting that I thought all like my insomnia and stuff when I was starting to become ill and before I had more specific diagnoses was caused by the stress of being on campus so sometimes I slept in a home that may have been less moldy I'm sure than the mods and slept in a home off campus like in Northampton up on the hill like I'm saying I thought maybe up on the hill is better um Northampton's yeah. a little hillier than Hadley, I think. Um, but even the bottom line is just
1: you—you—you you were testing your environment without and knowing I what
0: away from the, the environment, yeah. yeah, regardless of like the characteristics of the other environment. I was going away, and and I thought it was just due to the, being away from the stress of campus. You're taught—we're taught to not view, especially like psychological things, but. Uh, Basically, many illnesses, we're taught not to think of them first as, like, from our environmental toxins. Like, there are so many causes we think of first, like um, lifestyle, diet, etc. Mm-hmm. Maybe because it disturbs people to think that the environment is not just causing, like, long-term illness, like cancer, that they'll have to deal with later, but causing them to be sick and functioning worse right the second. I, I never yeah. could have thought. When of you're listening to this, probably like don't be freaked out, but think like how is your environment affecting you? Like even if you're not like um you know even if you're not dramatically ill the way I got um like you know for example I've um like I said a family member who got diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome who I learned they were reactive um just via doing caregiving for me because I was too sick to do maldivoyance on my own. And then they came with me to the pristine places, noticed improvement and noticed feeling bad in a lot of the same places I felt bad. in, And I feel very bad for them that they have to deal with that. Although it's good that they're learning about it earlier than I did, like, you know, way more functional, way less sick than I am. Um, And good that they, get to have a formal diagnosis of mast cell activation syndrome and treat that way before I did. So, yeah, I think the, the lesson here is just like, I, I don't know, pay attention to your environment and that we need a lot more scientific study of the effects of environmental toxins on
1: um, physical and mental health. Um, I really... Just cause it amazes me every day, like I'm not fully healed. Um, but, um, I'm astounded, I think, every day from how much stuff. I think, as I said to you, I just how many sufferings I've had for most of my life. Uh, I realize I have gone away from, um, becoming aware of this and. I don't know if I should say that or try and emphasize that again. Cause I feel like that might be like people hear that and they're like, huh, okay. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe I don't have to live with this like painful thing. Like maybe this isn't my reality.
2: Uh, yeah. And do experiment. Yeah, people,
0: people take a lot of bad things for granted. Like it's normal to be, um, depressed all the time or like, I mean, like a, and the, I think a lot of that is due to like, a, I don't know, an industrial capitalist ideology that yeah, it's just, totally. they're like kind of subtly brainwashing you into, it's just like um, this hegemonic idea that we've been, we've always been depressed. We've always, it's just huh. a normal thing, normal part of life. Maybe yeah. that's not true. Maybe people, you know, that lived, in times where the air was cleaner all over and not just in mountains and Taos or whatever, maybe people uh, used to be more like full of vitality and energy. And part of it, like this dis- disenchantment and modernity isn't just like a social disenchantment, but it's like, we no longer are as connected to like the vital energy that you get from like a clean environment and oh, a yeah, healthy environment,
1: totally, 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 yeah. I, I think mean,
0: a lot of like sites of spiritual power, places that people think have like uh, formed to be or like have found them and located them and said this is like a a place um, of spiritual power and like we worship here, where um, maybe because. Those were like super pristine or there was some kind of um, aspect
1: like of them that was the
2: egg, very healing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's, I feel like that's, I don't think it's chicken before the egg for those kind of places. I feel like there's something deeper to that. Like, yeah, it's not just that they're clean, there's also something magical there and maybe that keeps it clean.
0: Well, we don't have to be reductive here. We could yeah. say it's both or it's I'm just saying it's something to think about but I guess on that um yeah do you have any
2: closing thoughts
1: yeah I think if, if you're like don't accept your sufferings as reality I did that for so long in my life and just experimenting like listening to kind of intuitively or like what my mind kept desiring and craving which was honestly to be in the wilderness and it turns out that that's right and things that you know horrible things that like just have sucked to deal with in my mental health and physical health since being like a little kid have all gone away and it blows my fucking mind all the time who knows if it's it could be anything for anyone listening, but yeah, just keep experimenting. Right. Okay. Yeah. I would basically just
0: second that and say, yeah, like there's like, um, there's a difference between the ideology that you may have imbibed and like, and your thoughts and your intuition. And a lot of people are stuck with an ideological thing telling them, that this is not scientific or whatever and or this is like it couldn't possibly be environmental toxins causing my illness and then it often just is um and i wish i'd gotten out of uh, the toxic mold house i was living in sooner but also just the general toxic region um but i mean uh yeah so for anyone listening i guess that i would like them to take that away don't um just like stay stuck if you're having problems experiment with this just even if you don't believe it all the way treat it like a like a biohacking thing like a fun biohack you can try Try changing your
2: environment drastically Where we left off was a
0: basically ending on a lot of stuff about your personal um mold avoidance journey to um to house and then Albuquerque and well T Harris and Albuquerque, but um mm-hmm. then I realized that we didn't talk about something that's really germane to um uh all of this, um, you know, with all of the talk about the microbiome and the science of this and Eric's theories, uh, which is um, per- permaculture and your interest in permaculture, and your thought that maybe permaculture could remediate some of these problems, um, etc. cetera. Um, so I kind of want to let you just... Um, Start with explaining to a layperson what permaculture is um, versus
2: maybe regular agriculture. Sure. So,
1: um, okay, so I'll explain first permaculture versus regular agriculture. Um, essentially, there's a couple tiers, let's say, of growing food. Um, if you want to categorize, then there's conventional ag which is using pesticides, fertilizers, uh, all those things that are pretty nasty and uh, are essentially wartime chemicals turned into things to combat diseases that plants can get and that can deplete soil. Then there's organic farming, which is basically the same as conventional, except that any of those aggregates that they're using are... Uh, they're not chemical based. They're something that is organic uh, in nature, and like quite literally, it is the USDA. It's like it just has to be something organic. So there's, you know, there's some things that are kind of crazy that slip in even to organic ag. Um, it still involves tilling the earth for the most part, which releases. Uh, more carbon dioxide than any form of pollution. Um, And then permaculture is also a broad term, but it's a combination of permanent and agriculture. So it's usually does not involve monocropping. It involves companion planting where you're planting things that like to coexist with each other. Um, And it's essentially location specific unique and that you try to use the water resources the what you have handy to you um and it's it's also broad uh there's and it can involve you know some more uh invasive forms of kind of altering and then there's I think what I'm probably the most interested in is natural farming, which is, uh, where permaculture, the word kind of came from and natural farming is essentially, it's nothing new. It's kind of how, let's say indigenous people have been farming and growing food for, you know, let's say pre-industrial revolution. And it's usually is aimed at no-till, except for events where you really need to, but aiming at no-till. And this is really just to build up the soil microbiome.
0: Right. And the microbiome is really important to us as mold avoiders. I I see a lot of, uh, we have a lot of amateur, and I see that not in a bad way, like, um, you know, because we, don't have the funds to study it, but I think these are pretty sharp theories—amateur theories—that it's all about the microbiome, like the outdoor microbiome, like that the we're not uh, mold avoidance isn't about sterility and just avoiding a single toxin; it's about being in a rich microbiome. And um, I think earlier I may have touched on the analogy of like the outdoor or indoor microbiome, but outside of the body to the commensal or gut microbiome or the inside the body microbiome in that um, if you do uh, certain things to the microbiome inside the body, like if you use certain um, really broad and deep um, biocides and kill tons of bacteria over long periods of time and make it Kind of less resilient and diverse, then certain really nasty things take over the niches um, after you get rid of a lot of the good bacteria, stuff like um, C. diff and um, I don't know, Candida, um, that's known to happen with antibiotic overuse inside a human. So it, it's kind of, uh, you know, interesting to think about. Uh, scaling that out and thinking about the outdoor microbiome um but yeah so you initially ended up in new mexico not necessarily because of permaculture um but then you found permaculture work and you found um uh permaculture communities there so i'm curious about how that went from and doing mold avoidance, being there because it felt good to uh, working on this. There,
1: I think. I think what I'm kind of realizing is, um, I feel like I've noticed in myself some of my desires, like let's say to go different places or do different things it seems like some of those seem to be influenced by what my body is needing to do or wanting to do to heal. So I think in a way, all these things, it's, it's a part of a broad system. And it's a whole picture that I went to, when I was in Asia, I experienced what it was life was like, like very I don't know if you want to call it agrarian, but people were subsistent farming, growing their own food, um, and it was without a doubt it was probably the happiest I've ever been. And to me, I, I see this, which people there and already in America they they see that as you know old and backwards, and modernity is the answer. But I don't see any. I don't essentially see really any way that even electricity and most things about our modern world and consumer culture um, is sustainable for the earth or for our population. So I also, the interest in permaculture was definitely like my kind of internal uh, realizing what I believed in and how I wanted to live and what I felt like was necessary for the earth I think I started to realize later on as I learned more about mold avoidance and that many like adobe homes or naturally built homes, they might have mold in them, but it's not a mold that uh, causes you to get sick or something that you react to. And then I also started realizing just how twisted our uh, food system is. the whole just consumerist food system and the lack of localization in it. And just all these things are connected to our health and that the healthiest food is when it's directly picked when you're in the soil. So I came out to New Mexico, also knowing that I had a vision of living Um, more wanting to create some something that was I didn't want to call it farming but just growing food so you could eat what was natural what made sense with the location and living a much I think just more natural way um, that kind of aligned with myself and and also community not not trying to be like pioneer homesteader and just be alone i think community is really important and then this all connects to the mold avoidance since i think that lifestyle i think that draw is also what my body and maybe a lot of people's bodies or soul or mind is craving to heal um and then just doing some research in new mexico and uh just meeting different people that are doing that and it's really interesting to learn about growing somewhere where there's not much water
0: right right and i think um one of the things that's really interesting to me is that we have a lot of these really speculative theories and again not saying that in a negative way they're speculative not because they're so crazy, but because we just don't have almost any funding to study these diseases. So we don't have like any studies on this. But we have a lot of these speculative theories on sp- um, kind of cer- specific microbial um, and industrial chemical toxins um, mm. that create outdoor supertoxins that are the main drivers in this disease. And some of them have to do with agricultural chemicals, like um, the use of glyphosate, then causing Fusarium mold to grow in its wake. That's one of them. Some of them have to do with the use of fire retardants. Um, that is not directly related to agriculture, but that's related to how we shape the environment um, but what I was going to try and circle back to is um, I've never, I've thought that, you know, since I've done multiple weddings, I've thought we are, I've become a lot more radicalized on environmental issues to the extent that I think that we are absolutely Um, in the midst of environmental collapse already. It's not this thing that's going to happen in the future. It's not this dramatic sea levels rise. That's part of it, but we're already making people sick. Like we're casualties of that. We're canaries in the coal mine. Um, So it's already happening and it's really bad. But one thing is, is wondering if people, have civilization and technology at any level i mean you know where do you stop and for me um part of it is um kind of wondering about the difference where that comes into agriculture is learning about the difference between um domestication um kind of pop-down technologies uh, monoculture versus some kind of idea of wild crafting where you are engineering your environment but you're also letting your environment engineer you there's some kind of more of a feedback loop which is missing in industrial um agriculture
1: <laughs> yeah that's i guess there's one word that people were referred to as a food forest which none of these words are new i mean it's and i think to your point it's uh I think maybe to you and me, or I think a lot of people are pretty aware that our world is kind of built on this. I don't even know what you'd call it. I mean, it's from colonialism, it might go back even to like when someone first tilled the ground, but essentially thinking that you, man, is greater than other species, is greater than nature, and therefore can control it and use it as a resource. And I think what you're talking about, like that feedback loop of uh, a food forest, something you cultivate that feeds you and then you feed it, is kind of realizing like, oh shit, we're we're part of this, we're not, we are this earth and air and tree and all these things. So that's kind of my take on that.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, I wanted to Briefly ask you um, before I get into some of the science. Just curious about the where in New Mexico you've done permaculture, both in terms of um, you working on other people's farms or your own um, mm-hmm. farms or gardens, and also, I, uh, you know, what the permaculture. Garden or farm environments feel like uh, to you compared to wilderness, um, if at all different, or compared to agriculture. I I would note that I've um, gotten slammed at conventional small farms and even I think organic small farms. You know, maybe that's not um, necessarily a really awful toxin, but it's something there that was being digested um in the compass
1: yeah no that, that I, I think about that too actually and um I, I would agree with you it's it's mixed um which is un, a little bit unfortunate sometimes um there's a lot of agricultural areas let's say along the rio grande which runs through new mexico and those are not organic I don't, I feel pretty, I don't feel well there. It doesn't feel healing. Wilderness air to me still feels better. Um, I don't think that means it's not possible for there to be healing air in a, let's say, especially like natural or naturalistic, uh, food growing area, farm, food forest but I'm kind of with you, It's it depends on the place. And wilderness generally still feels up a par in terms of its ability for healing uh, CFS or just this sensitivity.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I would like to speak on something. Yeah, I've um, actually stayed on uh, a farm that was an Airbnb, in um that was really good and um although to be fair it was in um uh winter so everything was frozen so but i mean i think it says something that just like the air in general in that location was so good and i'll be going back there to check it out at some point um but uh i wanted to I remember you said some really fascinating things about, and I find this uh, to be really important, like uh, hunches and intuition are really important in mold And so is um, mm. theory and empirical evidence. But I, I see them as all part of the same thing. When people have really powerful hunches, which a lot of people don't um, have the luck to have that, um, even if they're not, you know say quote unquote mold avoiders um i listened to that and you said that your permaculture teacher had some hunches about certain places in new mexico um certain environments that were different um in some way or just apart could you uh relay those or refresh me on those
1: (laughs) yeah it might bring us into the realm of some kind of esoteric ethereal stuff but um that's fine that's good well you and i you introduced me at one point to the idea of a place uh having the love and peace frequency and what essentially i think people i don't know if that's 432 hertz um but it's basically the idea of some places people can do different uh, testing. Um, maybe we won't go into it, but some esoteric kind of testing uh, about places that seem to resonate with the feeling, the vibrational feeling of peace and love. And you told me about a forest um, up in the mountains, in a certain place in northern New Mexico. And you said, oh, like, because you needed a place to heal after surgery. Something about you intuitively really called you to this area. Um, mm, remote. And I think you told me that. I'm like, oh, that's that's funny. And you said, oh, and, you know, it, apparently this area resonates with, you know, the, the love frequency. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Well, This teacher of mine also said every time he goes for a walk, and this specific area, this forest, it... It just to him he really made a point not knowing any of this stuff we spoken had spoken about that it just feels like love like there's something intrinsically yeah there's something just different about that
0: um right so i think we're talking about like the el valier um area which is near the Pacos Wilderness, bordering on that and near um, the Santa Barbara campground and all, that whole yeah. kind of area. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah,
0: and I felt that feeling in a lot of forests. That I almost prefer that as an environment to the desert, although um, there's uh, so many environments that are good if they're um, free of toxins and rich. Um, but, you know, i felt that feeling in forests and mountains in West Virginia that seemed especially um, biodiverse, but just like inexplicably really euphoric and healing um, or uh, in the ancient Bristol Pine Forest um, in the Sierra Nevadas um, in California. Um, so I've gotten that in a diverse um, places, but the thing they had in common was that they were all um pretty untouched for a while. Not all of them were old growth. Uh the um West Virginia ones I actually uh researched and they're mostly second growth, which was surprising because of how rich and diverse and thriving they were, but they're old mm. for second growth forests and they're very well protected. And I think that explains a lot of of why they feel so good. Um, I was going to, yeah, briefly uh, read this. Um, I was just looking at a study that says the built environment is a microbial wasteland. Um, And the abstract says humanity's transition from the outdoor environment to the built environment has reduced our exposure to microbial diversity. The relative importance of factors that contribute to the composition of human-dominated EE microbial communities remains largely unknown. In their article in this issue, Chase and colleagues present an office-building study in which they controlled for environmental factors, geography, surface material, sampling location, and human interaction type. They found that surface location and geography were the strongest factors contributing to microbial community structure, while surface material had little effect. Even in the absence of direct human interaction, built environment surfaces were composed of 25 to 30% human skin-associated taxa. The Authors just dis- demonstrate how technical variation across sequencing runs is a major issue, especially in BE work where the biomass is often low and the potential for PCR contaminants is high. But overall, the authors conclude that built environment surfaces are desert-like environments where microbes passively accumulate. And uh, by desert, I don't think they mean uh, in the like positive way of wilderness that we. Tend to use it metaphorically, but it deserted. Um, so it's just uh essentially saying that I mean, while we might think of these environments that are hostile to our uh needs, uh, our sensitivities, like a drywall, etc., it's standard office building, we might think of them as having uh toxic presences. Um in scientific terms, they are like uh, basically microbial wastelands and have very little microbial biomass compared to um, natural environments. So I think that kind of fits in with what I was saying, where if you destroy the diversity, what fills the remaining niches is um, a lot nastier.
1: Yeah, totally. I'm, I think that's... Uh, looking at some of that stuff for me feels like uh, I went from, I think, before getting sick, wanting to be uh, in film, video editing, especially and video editing, editing you're on your computer inside a lot. And I have some desire for that, but not really much anymore. And I, I just want to be outside. And reading that, it's kind of like, oh, maybe my body is. Maybe my body knows it wants that kind of microbial diversity that comes from living like that.
2: Yeah, it's funny you say that. Yeah,
0: Yeah. the other article I had pulled up is just uh, about how your gut microbiome is responsible for cravings um, for nature, Um, which I think probably you've experienced that and I've experienced that. And it might be strange to a lot of people um but just like actually craving being in a forest or uh like really rich forest or desert or something but mm. when I've been in a lot of these places it's like um even though a lot of the time I've been not quite well enough to walk all the way in it's just like something is calling me deeper into the wilderness um but i want to bring up like a, one or two
2: Possible problems with, um, so I
0: I like the idea of using permaculture to essentially remediate uh, toxins. Um, In fact, I think in college I did an extremely amateur um, study about microremediation of lead and PCB contaminated environments. But I um, the like. I guess one problem I see with the idea, it's not really a problem with the idea of remediation, but it's a um, is that we are dumping so much bad stuff and so many toxins that simply um, we can't get to the point of remediation until we just cut the flow of toxins or stop dumping them. I mean, remediation is something that we should be doing, but it seems like an overwhelming challenge to deal with. You know, like if we just took fire retardant for an example, and um, a lot of people react to uh, microbes in the wake of fire retardant, um, uh, there's no sign that we're gonna stop dumping that. You know, we'll see next fire season and a bunch of this like red foam uh, dumped all across California, Arizona, Colorado. et cetera, um, like what do you see the role of permaculture in that? Do you think that we can remediate large areas? Do you think that it's like primarily defensive or offensive or what? That's It's just kind of the
2: one thing that comes up um, to me as a possible counter problem with permaculture. Yeah, I, I think we can. Um,
1: I think lately I've been saying because, as you know, I'm, I'm really drawn to the desert and I've been curious about how, which you know, a lot of the desert, New Mexico used to be a lush kind of buffalo grass that grew a pie and, and from uh, Spanish colonial, uh, American colonialism, essentially the ecosystem has been majorly desertified and altered, and the regenerative let's say permaculture farming is really looking at how you can build that up and there's also large scale projects this is different let's say from the chemi- from the standpoint of like chemical usage. I think there's definitely a lot I think also nature can take care of a lot when it's in uh when it's not in dysbiosis, when it's healthy. And even a CFS researcher, mold disease researcher, talked about how after about five or six years, uh, the flame retardant uh, mycotoxin microbes that um, are nasty stuff from after six years, after going back to this forest and it hadn't been sprayed with that or dumped from airplanes, helicopters, that it seemed like it had recovered so i i personally i don't feel hopeless i think humans also you know we've created these problems i think we the those of us who are kind of connecting with plants like uh you know paul stamets using mushrooms and making remediation for oil spills or Massive uranium, like uh, super contaminated radioactive areas that I think mushrooms and maybe a bacteria can uh, essentially be- turn non radioactive. And I, I want to say it's like a couple weeks really quick. So, yeah, I there's hope for sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, I absolutely wasn't trying to say there's no hope. I guess I was just saying, like, it it makes me wonder, like, what's uh, that maybe there should be a two prong strategy, like one prong to stop dumping this stuff, you know, because it's kind of, I do think that uh, nature is resilient, um, but there's limits (laughs) to that. And we push that. um,
2: Yeah. I mean, the Especially. Sahara
1: Desert is an example place that didn't used to be all sand. And that's like, we pushed it maybe past its point point of resiliency. And it's, it's, oh, sorry. it's like Fertile Crescent, too.
0: Could you, uh, wait, could you, which, um, the San Joaquin Valley? Or did no, you... no,
1: the, the Sahara or the Fertile Crescent of like Mesopotamia.
0: Oh, did it not used to be Desert.
2: It didn't, no.
1: I mean, oh
0: my God. I had no idea. So it, it used lot. to be some kind of step, like grass in environment?
1: Yeah. Almost, that got all the Middle East. And so, I mean, there's you are right. There's Nature might be resilient, but there's a certain tipping point, it seems, where the recovery rate may be a much, much, much longer
2: period yeah. of time
0: and my yeah. point is not to be to get anyone into a doom kind of mindset but that we want to not just make sure the planet survives which it will you know but make sure yeah. that um we make it um the people who are especially sensitive and reactive um to the byproducts of this kind of battle between the built environment and Um, toxins but I was gonna yeah that makes me think you know that we've always been shaping our environments and there's no hard line between nature and um, the unnatural and mankind and technology Um, but just in terms of there are huge cultural differences in in terms of impacts like technologies have had and in terms of like alienation like a, a it seems like a major problem um as uh in modernity has started with agriculture and this idea that um we see the earth as something that um doesn't just give us um like fruits in and of itself but has to be aggressively modified um and extracted like an extracted um, idea of agriculture and it's like a kind of it goes back to the bible and like the fall and being forced to be tillers of the soil it's almost like a curse
1: um uh i think it goes back to uh eating that apple
0: right it's an interesting mythology and the the guy who wrote Ishmael Daniel Quinn was um a deep ecologist who uh you uh talked about that um mythology in terms of um the relevant um cultures of nomadic herds people versus um uh, tillers of the soil that were exterminating them and not just uh Mm -hmm. committing some kind of ecocide but also starting to become genocidal towards their neighbors like he's that the people who wrote that myth Saw that as connected, and also wrote the Abel and Cain myth. Mm. Um, I wanted to bring up a quote and see how you react to it. Um, that I think has relevance to the microbiome, but doesn't even include the word. It's from an essay called "The Case for Letting Malibu Burn," and is about fire ecology. Um, mm-hmm. Quote. Total fire suppression, the official policy in the Southern California mountains since 1919, has been a tragic error because it creates enormous stockpiles of fuel. The extreme fires that eventually occur can transform the chemical structure of the soil itself. The volatilization of certain plant chemicals creates a water repellent layer in the upper soil. And this layer, by preventing percolation, dramatically accelerates subsequent sheet flooding and erosion. A monomaniacal obsession with managing ignition rather than chaparral accumulation simply makes doomsday-like firestorms and the great
2: floods that follow them virtually inevitable. Hmm. I guess, um, to me, uh, it's interesting
0: because... The the received wisdom is just that uh, a war on fire is a good thing. Like that's just what we do. Like even in, I mean, in California, it's probably the most insidious, where they're trying to protect these wealthy homes in a place that's meant to burn yearly, Malibu. But even in, I don't know, New Mexico or everywhere, it's not. We don't see it as a bad thing for. firefighters to be putting out fires but it's like fire ecology is a real thing and uh, there are certain plants that only flourish under fire i imagine probably the same thing is true for microbes um and i wasn't Mm -hmm. thinking about that because there's any literal relation to permaculture but just because of um this idea uh, i think of like trying to tame fire is really related to the pathology
2: culturally that we're talking about in terms of trying to uh tame the earth yeah i agree so i'm
0: just going to end on asking like what would your utopia um be like what's if you don't have any monetary obstacles um at all. Just uh, put those all out of your mind. What would it look like uh, to make um, some kind of permaculture um, community that also has integrated mold avoidance principles or vice
2: versa or both? Sure. I
1: With uh, that article about Malibu, I was going to bring that to, I think, something both of us have realize in dealing with um getting you know pretty paralyzingly sick and then realizing it's it mostly all seems to stem from an environmental problem is um that the mold illness kind of ties into i think what i see is uh Utopia always sounds so far off, but I think it's more like necessity. And I don't think it's new because utopia sounds like, uh, you know, it's part of the always forward progressive thinking mindset that we've been indoctrinated with, of you know, continual progress versus just what our roots are as being humans and, you know, being semi agrarian um, semi-possibly nomadic semi foraging, wildcrafting kind of people, that doesn't that doesn't really make for a life where CFS and mold sensitivity seems like it would crop up or stem from at all. And um I think that's also to me that seems like the lifestyle that would be the most beneficial to live at someone struggling with Yeah, any kind of onset symptoms from mold and mycotoxins um, or chemical sensitivities as well, EMF. So I think I I see it, I guess you could call it utopia, but I think it's necessary to live in a way that's harmonious. To me, that's building homes with things that are uh, natural, like living in an environment where you can harmoniously use water to grow or hunt and gather things um, and bathe and drink. Uh, Building homes with what is local, what's there to the eye and is not going to be extractive. And community, I think raising each other's family, like the non-nuclear family. is definitely part of it, and just like the idea of a village raises like a kid or a person is kind of how I see us humans as existing with the earth and you know continuing to be, as my permaculture teacher, uh, Jesse Boudreaux from uh, Zia Energetics says, is like being gardeners of the earth so planning things that are beneficial to the earth and to ourselves, maybe a
2: fruit tree, um, eating it, pooping, composting, all that good stuff.
0: So if I just said, like, just get a tiny bit more specific, because in New Mexico, like, I want to hear, like, your blueprint, you know, what's local, what's, you know, would use volcanic rock to make a house? would uh, what plants would you use locally for medicine um, and what would you use to remediate that's local
1: well okay so that's a lot of good questions and definitely well
0: you you can just answer some of them i don't know
1: yeah um Um, if anyone's interested definitely reach out because i'm i'm hoping to do this and even here it would depend on the location um of course adobe is good if you're in a place with Adobe if you know the the teepee um, timber for building um, seems like a lot of places in New Mexico it's easy to reach uh the right clay and sand mixture to make adobe homes, so I think that's something that's um, that's a pretty good one, and in doing so you might create uh i want to go into that, but there's an abundance of medicinal plants. Um, we just need to learn from them and and you know keep that interest up. Um, I think the food also depends. It's drier for the most part, so crops that do well and you don't need a well, you can use rainwater to grow them. Seems like it would make sense interspersed possibly with uh, maybe some herd animals or gathering different local things that might be around you, foods. Right. Um, Yeah.
0: And to be clear, when I said utopia, that was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I kind of just meant like a a refuge. I mean, utopia Mm -hmm. means a lot of different things. But I guess to wrap up, my thoughts on what you're saying... Someone who's thought about the microbiome, thought about my own illness, uh, thought about the biology and the theology, is that there's a big problem to solve here. But the you know, to not get bogged down in semantics, there's a lot of you know modern skeptic type people that don't that aren't really thinking scientifically that are inherently critical toward anything that makes the case for the natural or the organic because they um, have a semantic argument against, that, you know, know, nature isn't different from people. And they're right, nature isn't different from people. And we've always been changing our environment. But I guess what the problems that we're dealing with illness-wise are probably due to a plethora of really, really, novelty and like risk gone wild in terms of novel chemicals that are unregulated and then lack of diversity and resilience in the Mm -hmm. environment that we help shape. So um, it's not about buzzwords like natural or organic. It's about the fact that we have created like uh, in that study I said raised it amazingly in the title earlier. Um, We have created a microbial wasteland, a wasteland in so many ways. And, um, we probably, if we want our health back, can't just wait for nature to just, um, catch up, but we will work with nature and work with, um, kind of tradition, um, in that sense. What you were talking about is that there's, uh, there are things that are way older touchstones in terms of how to build how healthily, how to live healthily, um, mm. and that we've totally forgotten. Um, and this is even within human history, not um, just like saying that other animals did this, but humans used to do this, and now we're not, and now we're getting really sick. So I think I'll probably end it on that that seems like a good place good stopping
1: Mm. thank you walker
0: all right uh well good night and yeah
3: good luck
1: (laughs) thanks mate you too